Kerry Vishwanath, and welcome back to the basement for the third time, my friend. Yeah. Tyler Geis, good to see you again, my friend. How are you? Always a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And it's good that every like couple months we check in on each other and go, what should we do for our next episode um, on the show? And I know we have like, we always have like 10 or 15 different ideas and we kind of just land on one. So we have a treat for everybody uh, that isn't, you know, necessarily we're talking directors and whatnot, like we have in the past with um, the first episode we ever did. And then we did that three hour Michael Bay epic saga. Yeah, that was a trip. <laughs> I was, it was fun, but it was also exhausting, much like kind of watching any Michael Bay film, like. I yeah, that's a here. valid point because like the last 10 minutes of a Michael Bay movie, you're like, oh, <laughs> give me the fuck out of the seat. No, it's not. <laughs> that's the what fuck just thought. happened like, wow. for two and a half hours. Whew. I ran a marathon, man. <laughs> yeah, but so we're here today to talk film scores and I gave so you five to pick and I picked yes. my five. Um, yeah. they might intersect at some point with, but well, no, I, from what you've told me, I think there's, well, we do have one composer that is, I think both on our list yeah. and, um, a few that pretty much aren't. And I, we have some honorable mentions too. Um, oh, yes, so just some introductory before we get going, like what's just like a, a take you have of just how special you think a film score is to a great movie. Oh, I mean, I think it's. It's, it's funny because like when I was putting together my list, I was actually thinking about how, you know, we're filmmakers, we love watching movies. And sometimes like when, when the mood strikes us, if we think of a certain scene, you know, we like to actually, like for me anyway, it's like sometimes a great movie is like listening to a great album from your favorite band. Like you just, you take out the CD, you put it in, you press play, you go to your favorite song and then you just play the song and sit back and relax and just you know, enjoy it. And that's how I feel about movies. Like sometimes I'll just put a movie in, I'll go to a scene and I just feel like watching it just to get the sheer joy out of cinema and, you know, feel its transcendent impact on me. You know, like it's hard to articulate why I like certain scenes from movies, but I just, and I don't, I don't really want to articulate too much why, but I just love the magic of how it affects you. And like, not to say like I'm making this, um, analogy because we're talking about music so to say although music definitely plays a role in like in and how great a movie is and sometimes and sometimes I do watch a, a scene from a movie just for the score just because I want to feel I just love it it's catchy I just you know it's just it's just great to listen to and but it's like when you have that when you have that combination of music and image come together it's like there's it's magic there's like no other feeling like it when you're like watching a great scene from a great movie yeah, I mean, there's. That's why you always see a lot of the same directors go back to the same composers. Yeah, uh, Spielberg and John Williams. It's like oh, yes. they are. I don't know. They're they're it's made in heaven. Like they're they just yeah, have they're kindred spirits. You know, they're kindred spirits. They have this sort of like it's it's this like almost childlike enthusiasm about how they see the world and like they want to create fairy. It's like that they have sort of fairy tale approach, not to all their movies, but to the ones that we enjoy watching like Jaws or E.T. or Close Encounters or Indiana Jones. Like they have this sense of fun and magic. There's always like scores out there that I think it's like when I'm seeing the movie for the first time, it's like, I don't necessarily appreciate, I don't want to say I don't appreciate it, but like the score is just so good with the visuals that 
like it's after the fact I go and look up the music because I realize that it, it 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 almost just went so natural together with everything. And I think what we're going to do here today is every score or every composer with every film kind of brings something different to the table. But all in all, I think it evokes kind of the same emotion we get out of the films we're watching. I don't know if what I just said makes any sense <laughs> there, but but um, so we got we each got five. Um, they're pretty recognizable films, I would say, um, maybe to the so. maybe to the, you know, general moviegoer audience or listener to this to this show. So you are my guest, my friend. Yes. So you are up first. What is your first uh, what's your first film score? OK, well, my first film is a movie that we have already talked about before on our first podcast, which is also the film that made me want to become a filmmaker. I'm talking, of course, about Gladiator, Ridley Scott's brilliant epic masterpiece. Um, and I'm really glad I'm, we're, I'm talking about the score on Gladiator because I feel like it was something I felt like we only touched up on briefly, like in the previous podcast. So it's great. To, it's great. We have more time for this. So um, why do I like Gladiator? Why do I like the score? There's, 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 there's a bunch of reasons. I think, um, I mean, Hans Zimmer time and again has proven to be a composer who's very good at being versatile with like themes and sometimes like I think in the case of Gladiator you have a movie that's a personal story I mean it's, it's a personal story told through an epic canvas you know it's about a general who's seeking revenge on like those who killed his family and he's trying to get home and he's also a general in a war and he has to like and he gets you know I mean you know you know the story the general who became yep. a slave the slave who became a gladiator the gladiator who defied an empire. You know? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? <laughs> Classic, man. Let me <laughs> also mention, before you keep going, Hans yeah. Zimmer will appear again on this list. So continue. Yeah. <laughs> there is so many Hans Zimmer scores I could not, like, my, my brain split into two trying to decide which Hans Zimmer. But Gladiator, of course, was an obvious choice. Um, I didn't choose it because he won an Oscar. I chose it because... I think it was the first time, I, it was the first time I became aware of Hans Zimmer's score, but I also just found it com so compelling to watch. If um, you go back, I'm sorry, I might interrupt you a few times. Ahead, no, no, I love Hans Zimmer too. Yeah. But if you go back, like he really has been the, the standard for the past 10 to 15, even 20 years, I would say for like a yeah. film composer. But I was um, about a couple of weeks ago, I was scrolling around on Netflix and I landed on As Good As It Gets. And oh, I hit yeah. play. And I'm just, I'm kind of, and he's, Hans Zimmer's name pops up throughout the 90s, like before he really became Hans Zimmer. Yeah. And like Hans Zimmer's known for the big epic, like, you know, ever since he did the dark, the, the, the Nolan uh, Batman movies, it's it kind of, he put his stamp on like, you know, what we hear that yeah. kind of epic sound that people kind of make fun of sometimes now, but <laughs> he did the score for as good as it gets. And he, it's like this soft little, like, you know, it's a little New York love story mentality. And it, it's so fucking good, but like, it doesn't yeah. seem like a Hans Zimmer score, but anyway, keep going. Hey, Sorry. No, I, I absolutely think that's what I, that's what I love about Hans Zimmer. He's just so, he has a lot of range. And sometimes when you listen to a movie, I can't even, I don't even, I, you can't even detect Hans Zimmer themes until you see the credits and you're like, Hans Zimmer did that shit. Like, wow. Like, cause it's like, I'm going off on a tangent, but you know, yeah, I, I, from what I gather, like I think in the eighties, he was kind of more into the synthesizers and w working with Tony Scott and that sort of Top Gun style type of, you know, um, 
comp composition, Days of Thunder and all that. And I think, I mean, he's worked with like, with Ridley Scott, I feel like he has a certain, a certain, he has a certain style with Christopher Nolan. He's actually almost changing his style every movie, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, it, there's so much, we, it's, 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 it's quite something. And like, I feel like in Gladiator, there's actually a lot of different themes that he's covering. So like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you my list of like my favorite scenes and just why I like them. So um, obviously starting off with the opening battle with that din, 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 din. Huge yeah, tone setter for the entire movie. Yeah, com just completely riveting battle symphony of, I mean, as I described in the last podcast, I mean, you, you know, it's like you have, you know, fireballs on, you know, catapults firing off fireballs and, you know, the Roman army. And um, <laughs> just like, a, it's like a cacophony of like, I mean, you, you know, it's in the battle. It's like, you know, catapults and like barbarians screaming in the Roman army and clashing swords and, like this really beautiful theme is just playing throughout and you get this like the sense of the brutality of the Roman empire and like, um, I don't know, are, are you gonna be, <laughs> are you gonna be playing some of this music? Like- I'm actually going to uh, probably insert some stuff. If you have anything you wanna send my way, be my guest. Oh, okay, cool. Cause like- I, <laughs> I will be doing I'm... inserts. So like people at least get the feel <laughs> for, the, for the music. Okay, cool. I was like, I feel weird kind of trying to describe the music and the scene, but okay, cool. That's, that's, that's great. Like. But um, I guess to I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's just you have this, it's this huge epic battle, in the middle of this dreary woods with like a Roman army and you know catapults firing off fireballs and barbarians screaming and Russell Russell Crowe clanging swords with everybody in the background. You hear this just really riveting symphonic score that like gives you that feel of like you know action and adrenaline and like you know, survival and it's like a really beautiful score and then it ends on this like kind of soft sort of like doo, 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 doo. Mm -hmm. and you know for me it was like a really perfect like beginning middle and end to like a great scene that kind of sets up who Maximus is and like you said sets up the tone of what of the world of the movie mm -hmm. um and then like obviously and you hear this again you know later in the movie too I'm just I'm just going through the list so that I mean I I mean it's all, it was all just a really good score some of the stuff that Hans Zimmer, like some of the, even the smaller cues, I think when Russell, when, when, when Maximus is about to get executed and then escapes and he's riding through spit, he's riding through Europe, trying to get to like his home and Hans Zimmer has that. It's like a Spanish guitar, something. I, I just really like that a lot. It's, it's a cool, like, it's just a cool little, like little cue that kind of gives you the intimate, like struggle in, in a big Epic landscape. Um, and then obviously the, um, the scene when we go to Morocco, again, Hans Zimmer is like showing a lot of range because he's just giving you these, like, I don't, I wish I knew which instruments was used in, in this score. My mom could probably tell you because she's an ethnomusicologist. She studies music from all over the world. So she knows probably every instrument she can identify it. So, so mom, if you're out there listening to this, you could probably just feel free to just, you know, talk your brain off about what she I does miss. listen when you're on right huh D didn't you tell me like your mom listens like when you come on this show I I, I thought 
I don't know. Like I thought on the last episode, you're like, Hey, my mom's going to listen to the episode. Oh yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, yeah. When we're done. Yeah. I usually, I usually tell her like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. My mom's a fan of the show. She loves it. Um, the, um, the Morocco scene is interesting too, because he's, he's giving you all these like middle Eastern instruments of the, you know, if I have it right, it's like when, when the caravan is entering this big city and you hear do, 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 and you get a real sense of like the culture and like the, the staggering heat and like, you know, you're in a different world in this like horrible slave trade universe or something. And it was interesting because like as grim as it is there was just something about the score that just made the whole story really compelling to watch and i love the scene when um it was the first gladiator scene in that in that in that arena and you know i forgot how that i didn't forget how the music goes it's hard it's hard to sing out but it's like when when maximus and juba are fighting and they're like the only ones left and then you, you see a shot of them and it's like Maximus is looking at the camera with a spear and you hear that din, 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 din. it was just like like even those small little music cues I just I absolutely adore they're just really great stuff um I'll try to go a little faster <laughs> there's so many great scenes in here the okay so like and then you get to the first battle in Rome in the Colosseum just to go through really quickly there was like there, two things I really like about the scene one of them was that the moment when Maximus and his like companions are entering the arena and you hear Hans Zimmer's music just sort of like and then it just keeps going and they walk out onto the arena and you hear Hans Zimmer music just going and it's a 360 degree shot of Maximus looking up and seeing this Coliseum this entire audience in a 360 shot and I'm, and to me, that's like one of my favorite 25 seconds of cinema I've ever watched. I can't articulate exactly why, but there's just something about that shot that just really reels you into like the world of the Roman Empire. I think to me, it was cool because it was like, it's visual effects at its finest. It's like, it's world setting. It's setting the world up in a very, very like epic, masterful way. It's just like, it's such a great moment. I feel like... This Not, is yeah. this is like this is 2000 it came out, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like so this was a I don't think Gladiator gets enough credit for the special effects like what it did to kind of push that industry forward. I just remember the fact I, I that it totally does. I, it does. Well, I don't know. I just don't hear enough people talking about it that like the fact that they yeah. made the Colosseum I don't know. Like, I just remember thinking like, holy fuck, I'd never seen anything like that. They took this ancient, giant, ancient artifact of a place and just made it look so, it just real to me. And it made it look so epic. And the music, without a doubt, complements that movie scene after scene after scene. I'd I'd, I'd make a guess in saying that, like, because I think a lot of Gladiator, all the visual effects comes from most of the wide shots of just like, the whole yeah. city of Rome, but like, I mean, Ridley Scott being Ridley Scott is always going to find ways to just set dress and bring as much like into the scene, make, get, make it as real as possible. So like most of what you're seeing is just like old ruins that's being set dressed and like he's bringing in the giant foot and like he's bringing in crowds and he's actually 
<laughs> he's trying to like um he's trying to flatten the image of like so much in the background the foreground to make it look like a real city but i also think that gladiator i i'm wondering if lord of the rings was kind of what sort of took over the like reputation of becoming the like the landmark visual effects leap forward. Yeah. Like Gladiator was definitely, I think Gladiator was too, but I think people weren't really, didn't really know what to expect when they saw that film. But Lord of the Rings was kind of the one that was also doing these super innovative things. And because it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I think it just took all the credit. I don't know. I could be wrong, but. I see your point though. Like I definitely, yeah. I definitely see your point in that. At any rate, like Gladiator, I mean, the Coliseum was actually, most of the Coliseum was built and like a bunch of it was not. And I think it was, they were like staging, like it was like either three fourths of the whole Coliseum was built. Um, and they had to like stage it so that, um, so like most of the fights, like, cause I think if you were to like shoot the Coliseum from like head level, like you couldn't actually see like, you know, in a certain, on a certain lens, you could see like, you couldn't really see the audience or like what was sort of like above a certain like height. So like you could probably, you know, you could cheat a lot of angles that way, but anyway, I digress. So, um, um, what was I saying? I think that, so the scene when like Maximus and friends <laughs> are like battling, you know, these, like these warriors on chariots, it's like the battle of Carthage. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the score, again, it's reprising what we heard from like the opening battle scene. And what I like about the score is it's a little bit like, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit different, but like you're seeing, I think, I think the score is kind of like emphasizing on Maximus's abilities as a strategist. Like, cause first you think, oh man, these guys are screwed. Like they're going to just be taken out by these like archers on chariots. And then like, before you know it, Maximus is able to like get one chariot down. And then the music kind of takes on a whole different sort of life. And then before you know it, you know, you hear the, um, you're hearing dun 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 dun, dun. and then like you can that uh, i'm going on i'm going all over the place it's so hard to keep track of this like amazing scene um but first like um i think there's a moment when mac when um what was it so like when the first chariot goes down i think you hear um diamond hansu throws a spear and then oh no um do you remember the remember the german guy in the film when like he's um the, the big bulk, bulky German guy? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I think Rolf is his name, or maybe that's the actor's name. But so basically, like, there's a slowly, so slowly Maximus is able to maintain control of the situation. And like, he's able to, you know, for, first Rolf is like, he gets shot by an arrow, and then Maximus comes and like pushes him out of the way before the chariot runs him over, right? And then like, suddenly Rolf is on his side instead of working, working alone. And then like, all of this, like all of this strategy and people coming together and all this culmination of like the soldiers um, working together to take out the, the, the battle of Carthage people. And the music also just takes out as the, mu the music again is, is, um, is again, not elevating, but you know, it's like the, the, the music is sort of take, taking on a new form and suddenly it's like, you know, Maximus seems to be more in control and he's like winning the crowd and he's able to, you know, take out the other warriors. And it's just a really great, like, just a really great scene of like someone who's sort of like, who at first is sort of the underdog is able to rise to the challenge and through strategy and through cunning and through like getting people on his side is able to take down the enemy and win the crowd and 
become a hero and become victorious. And then you hear Hans Zimmer's and like, you know, in the audience, like literally when I was watching, I'm just like, yes, yes, yes. Like it was such a great, like almost victorious sort of moment of like, it was just, it's a great scene of Maximus, like kind of like getting the upper hand and suddenly becoming the guy who's like, who who has like, who, who has all the cards, you know? So that was a great scene. And obviously um, in talking about like, um, the spiritual side of the film, um, there's a woman named uh, Lisa Gerard who was uh, the yeah. singer on Gladiator who has this like really beautiful voice and like you can hear her, you can hear some of her music cues throughout the film and you know the, the scene when Maximus comes home and his family's murdered and you hear her like singing and it's really beautiful and heartfelt and like it's just just takes on a whole new life. I get goosebumps thinking about it and also the uh, the closing scene at the end when Maximus defeats Commodus and he's, but he, he, he got, you know, but Commodus stabbed him in the back, you know, way before the battle. So, so Maximus is dying. And like, you hear Lisa Gerard's like, It's just a beautiful voice and like I don't want to say it's the heart or the emotion of the film but I certainly think it sort of brings something more personal to Maximus mm -hmm. that's not just um that's not just bronze and action and violence and all that um I mean the whole score is just like incredible and it's also a testament to Zimmer how he's able to like work within because I feel like there's a bunch of genres in Gladiator and Zimmer's able to sort of bring it all together in a way that's organic if you actually watch, I don't know if like everybody watching, listening to this podcast remembers DVDs, but back in 2000, when I had my first DVD player, um, I had Gladiator was one of my first DVDs I owned along with The Matrix and Titan AE. And on Gladiator, mm. yeah, oh, I love Titan AE. Um, there was a feature out with Hans Zimmer where he's talking about the score and he said something really interesting. So I think Hans Zimmer won the Academy Award for this movie. And he mentioned that he has, he, he wishes that composers when they're awarded their Oscar, they're given the first four bars of a new, of a new score they have to write because he says writing scores is so difficult and trying to think of that first melody or that those first four bars is almost near impossible because there's like so many different directions you can go with and doing those, uh, doing those, like, and trying to conduct something. And like, I think he mentioned when he was working on the Lion King, he had like, like 48 themes or something, which were okay before he landed on the one that like he ended up using. It's a, it was a really cool, maybe, maybe appreciate music in a different way. I mean, obviously like these composers are trying to like, they're through trial and error, trying to compose different things and they're trying to see what works and what's organic that supports the scene and not necessarily kind of turns the scene on its head or it is like, you know, becomes a little bit overkill. But, um, and you know, just to wrap it all up, Hans Zimmer, like, and, and Ridley Scott, like, I think what they do great is they're able good to duo. help. Yeah, they're a great duo. They, they really, and Hans Zimmer just helps bring a texture to the world that Ridley Scott is creating, like through like the different types of music from like, you know, all this eclectic music from different parts of the world, Hans Zimmer is able to bring it together and just like help bring that sort of full, 
that that full sound and that full image to the screen just makes makes you feel like you're having a very joyous cinematic experience. All right. That was quite the essay you just gave me on Gladiator. Um, <laughs> I have like a whole, this is, I have like five of these right now. Holy shit. I don't even have that. I just, <laughs> but um, all right. No, that's, I know it's the second time you talked about it on the show, but yeah, that is, it, it really is a, I guess, I guess I personally just don't hear a lot of people giving Gladiator enough credit at least in the last few years, but I, it, yeah. it really is everything you just said. It's visually and with the Hans Zimmer score, it's, it's one of the best movies of the last 20 to 25 years. So yeah, here, my first pick of the day is um, probably in the top 100 films of all time. Um, and probably one of the most iconic scores of all time, but I don't want to talk about the, the the score the part well the one of the songs that everybody knows and works out to all the time to me bill conti's score in rocky is just beautiful you know people like to say oh it's you know of its time and i, I think like maybe the just the sound quality or something about that score really kind of just oozes 1976 to me and but you know, everybody loves, you know, gonna fly now. Everybody goes for a run to it. Everybody, everybody does push ups to it. Everybody, which, one is, which one's gonna fly? It's the workout one. It's, okay. it's when he's working, when he's training. Oh, okay. And, you know, and it really is one of the, it really is just an iconic piece of music. And yeah. I'll give it its credit right here for what it does to people who go to the gym a lot and what, it, but besides that, like there's phenomenal instrumentals in there. There's a phenomenal guitar solo that matches with like, like just all these horns and everything. And I know Sylvester Stallone wrote the film and stars in it, obviously. And he yeah. didn't get to direct the first one, but he always had this idea to kind of go off of your film gladiator of having some sort of score of like, a you know big like olympic gladiator event with these like entrance horns and that's yeah. where you kind of get that dun, 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 dun. think it's that's a well put together song but why it's on my list is actually um this the version you hear the the song i think it's called um going the distance by bill conti yeah. which is what you hear at the very end of the movie when they're in the final round uh rocky and apollo have beaten the ever-loving shit out of each other apollo didn't think rocky was gonna go 12 or 15 rounds with him and that's yeah. why you know, it's called going the distance. And that's kind of the theme of the movie because spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Rocky, Rocky loses in the end of the first one, which yeah. when they brought back the, um, the, the movie Creed with uh, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. I was so happy Creed, spoiler alert. I was so happy he lost in the first yeah. one because yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Everything's come full circle now. 
But the theme of the first Rocky is, or not the theme, but I don't know if it's a theme, but he knows he's going to go get his ass kicked through that entire movie. He knows he's going to go get his yeah. ass kicked. Yeah. But if he can be a man and go the distance and survive that fight and prove to himself that he isn't just a bum and he can do something with himself, then that's going to matter to him. And that's why he loses in the end, but he walks away just fine. He still has a, still has Adrian, you know, still has Polly for better or for worse. (laughs) (laughs) But he's, he, he wanted to go. He just, there's that speech in the film that I heard. I know I'm not talking a lot about Bill Conti right now, but yeah. There's that speech in the middle. Nah, no, it's the night before the fight where he. Oh, when they're in bed together. He lays in bed with Adrian, yeah. and I guess they wanted to cut that out. They thought it was a know nothing film, and Stallone basically said, "No, this is the heart of the movie." Yeah. He just wants to go the distance. He's saying that out loud. He knows he's going to get pummeled, and just those last two minutes of that fight, when the music is kicking in, and this is the part where we'll edit in the song, maybe the scene even, but. Um, and like the place is just going crazy. And then finally the bell rings and like, you know, they're kind of, it looks like it, to be honest, it felt kind of like a poorly 80 yard scene where they're talking to each other and they're like, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you know, Paul goes, it's not going to be no rematch. And Rocky's like, I don't want one. I don't want one. And then like the climactic music kicks in there. It just sends the biggest shiver up my spine. The, like they cut to that wide shot the the reporters the cameramen they all climb into the ring and you know is it it's, the, uh, is it the da, 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 yeah 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 that that yeah, is the one yeah. that is the score to me that's that's hit that's the score of that film i kind of actually always go back to yeah there's there's two versions of it there's the dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like there's that one and then there's another one with this kind of soft piano melody for like you know, like a minute or two and then it stops. And then that, you know, that part in the movie where the end of the fight happens, it kicks in. And um, I just, I love that scene. I love how the music blends together because, you know, there's pandemonium. Yeah. Apollo wins, but Rocky doesn't give a shit. He's looking for Adrian. He survived the fight. And like, you know, I think one of a, a very small moment in the movie is when Paulie, who's just been a piece of shit pretty much the entire film for the whole franchise to his sister, even like, and he's like sitting on the, he's sitting on the edge of the ring or something. And like Adrian gets, gets up. And a lot of people think, you know, her performance in the movie is kind of, eh, kind of corny, but I just think her performance, I loved her performance. I I just like, I hear people are so critical of how kind of dorky she is in this scene going, Oh, Rocky, Rocky. Well, she's I'm supposed like, to be like, I don't want to say awkward, but she's quiet and she's reserved and like she's kind of yeah behind like a part of herself that I feel like is lacking self-esteem. And Rocky being as 
being her true love just kind of brings it out of her, you know, like, yeah. And then and, like later in the franchise, she's the one who's trying to like bring Rocky up, trying to like make him feel like he's, yeah. you know, he's that scene with that music works so well for her yeah. because it's kind of like a wall is coming down in her. Like she's hung in the back the whole time. She doesn't want to watch the fight. And she kind of gets over this barrier in her, you feel, as she's coming out to the ring. And, you know, finally, you know, she gets up to the ring and, like, calls for Polly to just kind of, like, gives him a hint, like, you know, move, let me in. And Polly, who's just been a jerk to her, just, like, opens up the rope and lets her crawl in. And it, it's just, and then it gets to the big kind of climactic notes where they just talk to each other and they love each other. And it's just, how can you not, like, be romantic about this movie? in those final five minutes it's just you get why it won best picture like you you get why bill conti's score is so iconic um it's the story of an underdog it's like and people love the story of an underdog rising to the challenge and it's like what you said rocky doesn't win the fight but he wins in his heart of hearts because he know he was able to to just do it just get into the just fight and like you know make it through there's a great music cue. And again, it's those soft piano notes um, yeah. of and pretty much like the one thing I noticed, and this will be in like a lot of different scores. Maybe some of the notes are just like these basic notes in one song, but they're just changed into a different instrument. Even like, even on like this soft piano um, score you hear, it's still kind of the same notes of a few of the other tracks that Bill Conti does. Um but the scene where Mickey comes over to Rocky's apartment, basically saying, I'll be your trainer for this fight after he gets the fight after Mickey is pretty much treated Rocky like shit. And it's, it's such a great little scene where they have this knockdown drag out argument of, you know, here's Mickey, a guy who's an old man who also maybe hasn't really, you know, maybe he knows he's at the end of his run and he's looking for something good. And maybe he knows, you know, he's treated Rocky like shit and it looks yeah. like he's coming to kind of get a cash grab out of him, but really you feel his sincerity. Yeah. They have this big knockdown drag out argument and Mickey just gets up and leaves. And I remember, um, Oh my God. Why is, why is the actor who played him escaping me? Burgess Meredith. Yeah. Burgess Meredith. Burgess yeah. Meredith's face as he's leaving Rocky's apartment, like breaks your freaking heart. Yeah. And you think, I mean, if you're a first time viewer, you're like, you don't know what's going to come of this. And then he's walking down the street alone. And as the door opens and Rocky comes out to just chase him down and like talk to him and put his arm around him. And it's like, you don't know what they're saying, but you know, there's an apology. Those keys kick in again. And it, it's just so beautiful. Fight, big deal. Want to fight the fight? Yeah, I'll fight the big fight. I wouldn't want to fight that big fight. It was going to happen to me. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. And you want to be ringside and see? Do you? You want to help me out? Talk to you, my civic in my face like this. Legs ain't working, nothing's working. They go, go on, fight the chip. Yeah, I'll fight him. My face kicked in. Are you coming around here? You want to move in here with me? Come on here, come to my house. Real nice, come on in and move. It stinks. Don't play stinks.
you know, again, you get why this movie is such an iconic piece of cinema. Yeah. So there, there's my, like, it, it's just some of the best music, music, music in an American film. Like, love it. It's such a great, like, because I, I think the relationship between Mickey and Rocky is almost, I don't know if it's a father-son relationship, but it is definitely a mentor-student, like, relationship that just has, there's there's a lot of love and respect underneath. Yeah. You know, there's, like, a tough love to Mickey, which is also, like, I guess you need when you're a boxer, but he also, like, cares about Rocky and maybe sees something in him. Like, Rocky's got heart. I mean, you know, and that's important to the character, and, to, and it's why we love the Rocky movie so much yeah that like and also and in the music you obviously want the iconic um scene where he's walking up the steps of what was what's the building i can't is that the philadelphia art museum or something i don't it might be Uh, i've never been i've driven through philly i've never really been to philly but i'm sure any any philadelphia peeps watch listening to this could could correct us i apologize for not knowing this but it's such a great like and you hear the chorus going oh man I love what they do in two and Rocky is like is walking up the same steps and there's like there's like a crowd of children chasing after him and like he walks up the steps and they're all just surrounding him and it was just so great. It's like, oh, I love it. All right. You're up next, pal. Uh, This next movie I want to share with you all is a film that stars two of the greatest actors in cinema among the two greatest actors, uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in a crime thriller that we've all seen before. I'm talking, of course, about Righteous Kill. My name is David Fisk, detective first grade. I've been a cop for over 30 years. You don't become a cop because you want to serve and protect. You join the force because they let you carry a gun and a badge. What? Between the eyes. Respected and feared. You think I won't blow your head off? I wouldn't think twice about it. Most people respect the badge. Everybody respects the gun. No, I'm fucking with you, Fuck. of course. <laughs> <laughs> with the venerable 50 Cent and no. It's he. Donnie Wahlberg. Oh, well, I mean, hey, if you want a righteous kill, I'd like to hear your take. I don't, I don't remember two seconds of that film. I'll be honest with you. But. I, I, for some reason, have it on DVD. I don't know. <laughs> this is cool. I, mean, I, have no, I have no recollection of buying that. But I know, you're not talk, I, I know you're not talking about that film. We are talking, of course, about Heat, Michael Mann's 1995 masterpiece drama. Yes, I said it. I'm not going to say action movie because it is more than that. Yeah, um, definitely. Also a great crime heist thriller, of course. And such a great cast, too. I know it's De Niro and Pacino like leading that up, but the supporting roles all the way down to fucking Henry Rollins. I know, yeah. It's I like mean, incredible. God, yeah. The Hulk, I mean, yeah. Val, you know, you got Val Kilmore, John Boyd, Natalie Portman, Diane Benora, Amy Brenneman, Dennis Haysbert, Ted Levine, like Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo, yeah. William Fickner, uh, I'm probably Michael T. Williamson off mm-hmm. West Duty. It's just, a, it's such a great cast. It's like, though, I mean, it's, it's, it's great, you know? And actually, so I chose, he was actually the movie that when you asked me to put together the top, my top five list, he was actually the first movie on the list, never made it off, or there was never any kind of like friction of like, this shouldn't be on there. Because what I like about Heat is because the score is not a traditional score. It's a very 
percussive score that um, sort of, I would say, melts together both music and sound effects almost. Mm -hmm. So the composer of the movie is uh, Elliot Goldenthal, if I'm saying that right. Um, and I think what I like, what I, what I like about, what I like, what I like about the, the, the score is that it's percussive in a way where it almost makes you feel like, um, it's like the score is an extension of the atmosphere of the concrete jungles of LA. So like, if that makes sense. No, I agree. So like, for example, so like, just to go through like my favorite scenes, of course, the heist at the beginning, when you hear like the drums, the and like, I think there's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a musician, so I'm not sure how to, how to articulate this, but I think what you, there's some like guitar riffs in the background that are they almost kind of sound thrilling, like, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, yeah, no, I, I got you. It, it, this, the entire, like, the entire score of this movie is very, very, it's one of those atmospheric scores I've ever heard. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, it's, it's not exactly, it's because it's not a score that you would sort of like put on and just kind of listen to and like, it's yeah. not like, it's not, it's not a, it's not a traditionally like, it's very iconic ambient, John you know? Williams score. What was that? It's very ambient. It's very ambient. And there's something about like, there's something about the sound effects that kind of, I mean, if it, it, it almost feels like LA is coming alive when you're watching it. So like you hear, so it's like when you hear the drums in the back and you hear, you know, you hear the guitar riff and you see De Niro and Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore take, take, taken out and Wayne Grow like, you know, turning over the van and like, you know, blowing it and then blowing it up. And like, and that awesome shot of the cars in the lot just with the windows breaking was just so fucking cool. Another, another favorite moment in cinema of mine. And like, I kind of feel like the music is there to sort of make you feel like, I mean, it's, it's like Hans Zimmer, like you're, you're being dropped into the, into the heist, but there's kind of an element of like excitement and, and, and again, adrenaline, but also this really unsettling feeling where you feel like you might be one of the hostages or one of the bank robbers. And like the clock is ticking mm -hmm. and you have to like, you know, you have to sort of get, get the bear bonds before you get out. And like, um, some of the music with like the heist stuff and yeah. I'm not, I haven't, I've seen heat multiple times, but I haven't seen it recently enough to give a full on deep dive here with you. But I feel like a lot of the heist stuff when they're in the bank, it feels like it has this calming tone to it, but it's also like you feel the pressure of yeah. like what they're going through, which is probably what it might be like to rob a bank. I don't know, especially if you're a character like Robert De Niro, you're kind of this very quiet, mild mannered guy but if you're robbing a bank yeah. still like a lot of shit's going on inside of you. It's yeah. Yeah. Like Robert De Niro alone just like gives a really great performance. And I feel like the way his mind works, like the way Neil McCauley's mind work is like you said, like you're kind of like, he's trying to calculate sort of like, you know, walking into the bank and strategizing, like, you know, like they're whole, they're playing that they're playing the whole bank heist, like from the beginning of the movie. So of course, like, you know, when you get to the bank heist, you're, you, I think I forgot what, sound effects you hear but it's like a ding, 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 ding. and like it does feel like you know the pressure's on the clock is ticking they have to like get the money and get out before Pacino and his um gang of police badasses come and take and try to like take him out and like it, it's 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 just really cool like hearing these different types of sound effects like throughout these like action scenes mm -hmm. like 
and also I, I I also made a note of um I think the music cues like the man I wish I I wish I knew what what Elliot Goldenthal was playing in those notes but like I think so the scene when um when Robert De Niro is talking to Edie at the diner and they go back to her place and I think there's a they're playing this like very kind of I don't know if it's synthesizer music but it's like it's a very kind of calming romantic mm-hmm. melodic sort of theme that kind of like doesn't there's there's not necessarily like a melody in there but it's just like a long running a series of long running notes that leads to them sleeping together and like there's kind of a nice melancholy almost but kind of feel good romantic feeling at the same time I'm not sure how to describe it but when you listen to it it like it makes sense because it's like here's a guy who obviously normally has no one in his life and then he meets this girl and suddenly he's like it's like his feelings and his and his feelings are tested or like the way he thinks like you know his whole mantra of like if you spot heat around the corner you have to like walk out 30 seconds like even if it's a girl or someone he loves and it's like he's kind of wrestling with those like yeah those mindsets you know he has a great line when they're like on the i think they're on their balcony having a drink yeah and he says like you know i'm alone but I'm not lonely. I'm not lonely, yeah. I think that I don't know that that just line always stuck with me. It would, and that's just so on point with his character. Yeah, it's in the way, and also the way like Michael Mann is framing Robert De Niro's face. I mean, you see this throughout the whole movie with all the characters, like the way he's filming close-ups, the way the shadows fall off the faces, the way you kind of see the sadness and the loneliness behind the eyes. It's almost like it's it's, it's a beautifully shot film. Obviously, I mean, cinematography is just by Dante Spinotti is incredible. And it's kind of like what you said, sometimes like, I kind of feel like if you were to see, if you were to like look at the cover of Heat and then look at the back and see the photos and then watch the movie and listen to the music, I think it makes a lot of sense why that music and those images, like it makes sense the music, you'd use that type of music to go with those images. Cause it's like those images just stand out on their own, almost kind of feels like a graphic novel or maybe even a painting but like there's some like photorealism, but also surrealism, but like the colors are just beautiful. And like the music just, if anything, gives it more, drives home the atmosphere and kind of makes you feel like you are the characters and you're feeling those intimate moments as well. You know, even when, um, spoiler alert, Neil is saying goodbye to Edie after he takes out Wangro at the hotel, you know, cause he's, he's there and Al Pacino is about to chase him down and he has to look at Edie and like that look on his face when he realizes that it's over and he leaves and the music is there's this orchestral score and it's soaring and you're just like your heart kind of starts to break a little bit and you're like oh man this is it's really sad but like and also I mean I'm cheating I'm cheating when I say this because it has nothing to do with the score but Moby's two songs in the film are freaking awesome first Hmm. off like the, the song when Pacino was chasing after De Niro on the freeway and you hear yeah. yeah it was just it's so I, I love it and then the scene and at the scene how do you say we get a cup of coffee <laughs> yeah sure let's go <laughs> follow me <laughs> it's like how you doing <laughs> you just do Al Pacino like voices through this whole freaking like part of the podcast the other thing well, I liked about it was motherfucking the painterly cinematography with Dante Spinotti. <laughs> I mean, we can't, we can't, we also can't forget the, um, of course, the the diner scene between the two. It's an, it's iconic. It's a great. I don't think there's music in it, but yeah, it's an iconic scene. Like well, we, can't, we we can't avoid that elephant in the room. That's one of the best scenes of all time. 
there is i think there's music but i think it's just like a long note that just kind of oh okay stretches okay. that they do that he, that michael man tends to do sometimes sometimes it's present sometimes it's not but it's it's really cool i guess near the end when like pacino says you know if it's between you and some poor bastard you're about to make it to a widow then brother you are going down you are down. <laughs> there's a flip side of that coin <laughs> What if I got you posted in? I gotta take you down. You know, we're sitting here. You and I are like a couple of regular fellows. You do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you some poor bastard whose wife you're going to turn into a widow. Brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in and I got to put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate. Not for a second. Maybe that's the way it'll be. Or, who knows? Or maybe we'll never see each other. Something about the perfect marriage of music and image. I also wrote, I also made a note of just Moby's uh, last song at the end when Pacino is holding De Niro's hand after he shot him and like it's a beautiful shot too. It's a that. beautiful, it's a beautiful shot. The music again is kind of emphasizing that like, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing from like um, the, the interviews with all the actors from the, from the, from the behind the scenes stuff. They mentioned that like Pacino and De Niro's character are like soulmates or they're like, they understand each other more than they understand like all the other characters in the film and like the music just kind of brings that home. It's like a love story kind of, but like, mm -hmm. and you feel sort of the tragedy of these two figures like parting ways, even though they, you know, know each other very, very well, even in those like, even in that like one scene at the diner. Yeah, man, though, Michael, man, he's got a great taste in music. And I just, I love that he's able to just give you something eclectic that it's like a score that like makes you, again, makes you feel like it's a score that kind of becomes part of the background almost like the it's kind of it's, it's almost like Elliot Goldenthal and his orchestra were on the streets of LA performing and you can hear the music just echo all around the city like in the distance and just kind of coming to you and and then kind of echoing off or something it's just it's it's a fantastic score heat i i got i want it's i revisit heat every like three four years or if it's on tv i stop and watch it for at least like 30 minutes it's one of those movies i i 
you know, you kind of shut for me. I just like, I shut down what I'm doing and just, you know, watch it at least for a little bit. Um, okay. So my next pick, I'm excited to talk about it because it is my one pick that is a composer who is also a filmmaker and he composes all of his movies. Well, pretty much all of them, I think. And I've talked about him. He's one of my, you know, favorite filmmakers. He's probably in my top five of all time, but, um, there's something about this score to me and he has a million, not a million, I'm exaggerating, but he has a handful of scores in all his films that, you know, I, I love and listen to. Uh, but there's something about John Carpenter's main theme in Christine that is just like part scary, part like you, you feel the horror of this movie, part like kick-ass rock and roll. <laughs> and yeah <laughs> and i don't know if you I, you texted me last night like were you i, I watched christina and i actually finished it uh earlier today it's a great film it's it, so i haven't seen it in a couple years but i listened to the theme because i have john carpenter like on my spotify john carpenter radio or on my pandora or something if anybody even still listens to pandora i don't know <laughs> but, probably <laughs> um so the theme song to christine pops up on my uh pinned on that channel all the time so like if i'm going for a run or something or going for a walk uh, i hear it like weekly and i'd never skip it it, it just it, you know i'll insert it right here just has this kind of like soft almost like heat like kind of an ambient opening and there's there's the one from the movie the film came out in 1983 it's based off the stephen king novel for anybody who doesn't know it is about a killer car <laughs> and um <laughs> there is some great like old 1950s 1960s like music woven in and out of the movie you know the famous show me scene for anybody who knows what i'm talking about when christine the yeah. car is in absolute shambles but then it comes back to life. It reassembles um, itself from yeah. being destroyed by the bullies in the film. Yeah. So, so I think, I don't know what really what Stephen King was thinking about when he was writing this movie. I kind of had this idea of, he was taking the idea of what it's like to be a man when you get a car, when you're young. Yeah. And, you know, the, the power it kind of gives you. And like, what if you get an evil car and it just <laughs> fucks you up? And turns you into this, this evil person because we see like this absolute nerd turn into kind of some guy who thinks the he's the, yeah he thinks he's like the coolest thing ever 
Yeah. Um, that was a fascinating character arc too, because like from watching so many movies of the nerd just being awkward, like I feel like I see, I see like ninety nine percent of the time the nerd is still the awkward nerd by the end, but in this it's just like you hate him. You hate yeah his, well, his yeah his character development is so great because he starts off as a nerd and then through buying the car and putting it together he becomes more confident, gets the hot girl, and then like you said he becomes a much bigger asshole that kind of teeters between you know amoral and just immoral yeah um so this is so john carpenter directed and he scores pretty much i want to say he scored 95 percent of his films i i don't i don't know if he scored big trouble in little china because that was a that was really his only major studio film i might be wrong about that um but you know obviously the famous score from halloween which put him on the map uh, but to me, like, there's way better film scores from his movies. I think The Fog is one of the creepiest themes ever. Yeah. Uh, Escape from New York, I think, is cool. Um, the Thing is a great theme. I love that one. But The Thing... Oh, that's Ennio Morricone, my bad. Ennio Morricone, which I'll get to him in a little bit. Yes. But, um, <laughs> but, so, the, so, actually, to touch on The Thing, which, wow, that sounded kind of wrong, but... Um, <laughs> Um, the thing was such a box office bomb and Christine came out like a year after it. And, you know, the movie does really kind of feel like a John Carpenter movie, but I want to say there was maybe a little bit of extra people involved more than there usually is in a Carpenter oh, film. Yeah. And I think, and I don't know what's a hundred percent fact here, but I'm just kind of going by hearsay um, and paraphrasing a little bit, but the studio kind of saw the fact that, the thing was kind of a dud. And I think what happened was, you know, they probably said, John, we're going to let you make this Stephen King adaptation. Um, you know, but, you know, I don't think a lot, I don't think he got to put his score all over the movie. But this theme comes out in one of the most scariest fucking scenes like ever when Christine, the car is on fire chasing down these bullies and just the tempo of the fact that scene. this burning car is coming after this kid and, you know, the <laughs> synths and the guitars and everything in this, in this fucking scary yet kind of kick-ass rock and roll theme. It just, it's such, it's, it's such a beautiful shot of this burning car. And like they do the POV of the car, POV of the kid runs going back and forth. And it's a brutal death scene basically. And I just, I just think this is a testament that, you know, you can't, even if you're trying to put Carpenter in a box, he just still kind of shows you that this is his movie. Yeah. Um, he, you know, when you're watching a John Carpenter movie, he doesn't give you a lot or no, he gives you a lot with a little, I should say. Um, his directing and, is phenomenal. I, yeah. I, his, I noticed his style is very minimal, but it's like, he's able to give you just enough of what you need to tell the story yeah, his his scores, his film scores aren't these over the top like Hans Zimmer things. They're just these very yeah. eerie, ambient vibes with like you know notes from you know a piano or something. But the the actually it's funny the um there's a remaster of this song. I think he put out he he puts out albums like he went on a Carpenter went on a tour like four or five years ago, and people thought it was kind of cool because. You know, you're going to see a John Carpenter show, and I guess he has a band. Like, I think one of them is his, I think one of his band members is his son. 
And, um, you know, here you got John Carpenter, 75 years old, coming out on stage, playing the like keyboard. Wow. And he's just like slamming his fist out. Like they have like a big monitor behind him of like the movies from where the song's from. And he's just like, he's just like slamming his fingers down on the keys and he's like putting up his devil horns and like, <laughs> like the arenas. That's like, so cool. I mean, he doesn't play like big, big arenas, but like the yeah. venues are just like, yeah, fuck yeah, John Carpenter. <laughs> And like Chris, have you ever been to any of his concerts? Or? No, and he he hasn't toured in like a few years, but he's been doing. I think <laughs> he just dropped an album this year, and you know he obviously wow. for the Halloween reboots they did with Blumhouse. You know he does the music for those, and they're kind of the same. You know, woven. You know the, the same scores from the original with you know more of an up modern tempo to them. But yeah, he still releases music that you know was from his films he does all he gets all these remasters and because they're his you know he's probably making a shitload of money off of it but the 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 remaster of the christine theme um like just how i say that it is like kind of a kick-ass rock song when the guitars kick in like amplify that by 10 with this remaster i just i love this song i think it's just called christine it's just the theme yeah. And it works so well with how this movie flows. Um, it, it's I remember hearing about the book. My mom was a big Stephen King fan. And, you know, she's like, so there's a book. There's a story about a killer car. And that always stuck with me. So when I finally got around to the movie before I even read the book, uh, I just it's so cinematic. It, he's yeah. his fingers are all over his movies. I don't even know why I said that, but like. You just feel his presence as a director. I mean, he he had a bold statement one time of a cinematographer doesn't need to tell me where to put a camera. Uh, he, you know, he has an eye for these things. He's like a cinematographer tells me where to put like, a, you know, lights and whatnot. But yeah, he just he knows what he's doing. He's a master of his craft. And Christine, that score just compliments that movie. Yeah. I was I, I'm yeah, I. <laughs> You know, I was actually, I, I was still trying to wrap my head around, like, how the fuck they were able to light up a car and just, like, and drive it through, like, a gas station. Yeah. And, like, it's, it was just the, one of the gnarliest things I've ever seen in a movie. Um, there was some kind of, like, jazzy theme, I think. It wasn't, it wasn't around when, like, when, when, the, when, when the main character, the greaser, says, show me or something. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. It was, like, an, a very strange a strange kind of like love scene slash horror scene where like the car is kind of just like showing it's showing its goods, I guess we could call it. Yeah. First reanimating itself to like become the cleanest, sexiest car ever. And just like, it almost like, it's almost as though the main character is getting kind of a high or just getting, dare I say it, a hard on from just like, (laughs) no, I I think car. Yeah. I think there was, it was a metaphor for like sex for him. Cause like his character is not getting laid or anything really. Well, he is by the hot, the hot smart girl and then like and then yeah yeah very quickly the girl that's what i like about that that's what i liked about christine because i think when you when you texted me about the film i decided to watch it just expecting to maybe enjoy it i mean I, I, john carpenter is obviously a great filmmaker but i was like i don't know if this is my cup of tea and then like when i realized that the car is also harboring jealous feelings toward the girl and the car is becoming like the the girlfriend you know not to say yeah like suddenly takes on a whole different life where it's like oh man this car is a mind of its own and it like hates the girl Ooh, this isn't good like it's it was such a clever premise and like everything about like that whole a murderous car is just like i think 
you know, kudos on Stephen King's part for just creating a really cool concept and kudos on John Carpenter for just bringing it to life. Like it's his, a so- they're a solid duo. I mean, like, I don't know what they extent are. they really worked together. I mean, I'm sure it was Stephen King just saying, yeah, sure. Adapt my movie. Fuck it. You need any notes? Call me. Or you need any tips? Call me. But that movie, seeing how like the thing at the time, I mean, the thing is such a, everybody loves that movie now but it was such a box office dud. Like Christine kind of, I don't want to say it saved his career, but it definitely re-energized it a little bit when it probably could have gone flat. And who knows, we wouldn't have had another string of like six pretty good, maybe not the, the best of his work, but still some good movies. Um, so yeah, that's Christine for me. Yeah. I love Robert Prosky, which is like, don't get fucking smart with me. <laughs> <laughs> I got the keys to the golden fucking toilet. What was that like? It was like, it was, really, it was a really funny. He's, he's the best lines. It was so good. Yeah. All right. All right. You're up. Okay. Number um, three. Number three. All right. So my third movie is another Ridley Scott film. And it was made in 2005. <laughs> I was trying to think of a cool intro, but now it's just like, it's, 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 it's good. It's, it's, it's not coming to me, but, um, all right, well, I'll, I'll start over. So, um, the next movie on my list is another Ridley movie made in 2005 about the crusades. I'm talking of course about kingdom of heaven. Oh, you didn't, was this? uh, Yeah. All right. right. It was on my, yeah. So when we were putting together the list kingdom of heaven, I mentioned a Tyler was on my honorable mentions and I think I moved it up to like one of the, the, the spot one of those five spots have you seen kingdom of heaven or i think like i think maybe within a year of it coming out i, I really haven't seen it in a while so i don't even know what the music sounds like so oh, okay entice me i will entice you so that was weird um <laughs> <laughs> not really weird it's just we're just fucking around but um so um i'm referring to the kingdom of heaven director's cut um which I think is almost three hours long, but I think is also one of, in my personal opinion, one of my favorite epics and probably one of the best epics I've ever seen. Um, So um, for those of you who who have not seen it, Kingdom of Heaven is about a blacksmith in France who ends up traveling to Jerusalem to um, repent for his sins, I guess. It's basically he murders he murders his brother who's a monk because his brother his brother is a horrible person and he ends up um reconnecting with his father they go down to jerusalem so he can repent for his sins because jerusalem is supposedly the place the place the it's what was it my history is a little hazy but i guess jerusalem was a place where like you could go to it's one of the religious centers of the entire christian world or muslim world or something i'm complete I'm, i'm completely like rehashing what I what I if Carrie got it wrong, leave him alone. Don't cancel him. All right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. I'll say this. So so Jerusalem was um, he travels to Jerusalem because it's a it's it was one of the religious centers of the world where you can go and repent for your sins. I guess for I guess for from the Christian perspective, that's what I gathered from watching mm-hmm. the film. Um, the historians, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, please don't cancel me. So um, and when he's going down there, so of course it's in the middle of the Crusades, and there's tensions between the Christians and the Muslims. So the Christians have taken over Jerusalem and the Muslims are trying to take Jerusalem back. Um, and the, the king of the, the, king of the uh, Muslims, his name is Saladin, he's, he was regarded in history as this well-known warrior slash poet who was like well-respected and a cunning warrior and a strategist and like 
when you watch the and and like in the film there's like there's a lot of there's fictionalized characters but there's also characters based in real life and Saladin was one of them and he was like really compelling character but um I digress because so Kingdom of Heaven was um scored by Harry Gregson Williams who I think was a protege of Hans Zimmer um if you don't know him, I'm, my mind is my mind is going blank. He composed *Man on Fire*. He did the *Metal Gear Solid* mo- um, video games nice. and the other films. Yeah, um, you can you can IMDb him. He and like I think he normally does sort of like action mod- modern action scores. I think um, I know he did *Shrek* as well, so maybe he has more range than I thought. But like *Kingdom of Heaven* was a movie that completely blew me away because like the scores that he puts in. This, the, the type of music he puts in this movie are just it's just like i think it's there's choirs there's this like kind of medieval type of music which i've never really heard or i haven't i haven't heard of before or since um and it really again like re, like what ridley scott does almost better than most directors he can really bring you into a different world and through the music is is able to just like make you feel like you're in i think it was the 1100s so this was the, the medieval times i believe i think mm. um so like and more more on the subject of music the i guess the film i'll try to articulate this to, to the best of my ability explores the nature of war and i guess tackles themes of religion and how like as a christian and a god worshiper um how you know you have to die honorably in battle or, you know, if you want to get into heaven, you have to, you have to fight honorably. You have to be, you know, you have to have a noble heart. You have to do the right thing. Um, and there's, there's, there's all these like religious undertones. I'm not really religious. I don't follow any religion at all, but I do respect people who are religious. But, I, and I think this movie paints a, a very clear picture of like where Christianity and where Islam was at at the time, like, and how it sort of factors into being a soldier in the field of battle. Um, I don't really know. There's it's it's a it's a long movie and there's a lot to cover, so I'll keep it I'll keep it fairly brief. But um, a lot of the battle scenes actually were really interesting because I think what Ridley Scott does in this movie is like his this movie is I don't want to say more mature than Gladiator, but it takes on more complex themes and approaches violence and war in a way that's different from Gladiator. So like for Gladiator, it's more like a movie about survival and revenge, whereas in Kingdom of Heaven, it's the battle sort of emphasizes the characters. It's like, you must be brave, you know, in the field of battle. There's a, there's a speech by Liam Neeson that's like, that's going above my head where he mentions like the importance of like doing the right thing and being a good soldier, you know. Oh, it's when he's in the trailer, like he says, you know, he's, he's knighting Orlando Bloom and he says, have courage in the face of your enemy, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, rise a knight, rise a knight. And like, actually like, and, and, and those, and the, and the music that was playing during those theme, during those moments were just, it's really powerful. Like you hear, you hear Harry Gregson tackling like these sort of like choiry, um, almost orchestral sort of, um, of uh, mus- musical, musical themes that's just it's 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 really great stuff um and i also mentioned like so and there's a there's a battle sequence uh, later in the film where um so basically orlando bloom is is basically he's riding into battle to defend this muslim army against like because this muslim army is going after like these small villages 
this is in retaliation to like a, a previous scene where there's a, a there's another like battle that happened or something um but there's a scene where orlando bloom is basically charging at the muslim army and like harry gregson williams it takes on sort of an action an action movie sort of like orchestral symphonic score that's like it's like and then like by the time i think let me look that up so you can like if you if you're gonna post this it's called the battle of Kurak. um so writing it down oh i'll write it down And so that music plays, he charges once he one and, and once he once he gets to the Muslim army, you hear a choir, you hear the choir music come in, you hear da, 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 da. and like there's a really cool thing actually. I'm just saying this as a filmmaker, where Alain, where you're hearing you're hearing the you're hearing the carnage in like the gritty battle scenes, but it's almost muffled because and the music is kind of like taking more control and like it's it's a really cool effect i don't really know what it means but i get maybe, maybe just more towards the themes i just mentioned but it was just like a an interesting way of showing how you know people go into battle and they fight fight and die with honor and there's like it's just a really interesting effect if you see it um mm -hmm. i do i should i should preface that this movie explores historic the historical tensions between christians and muslims during that time so there's no real protagonists or antagonists like there's no like good guys and bad guys it's really just people trying to i guess you know there there there's people it, it's it's basically just people trying to do what do the right thing or do the right cause you know and you do get to spend time with like the the, the muslim characters and the christian characters to understand like where they're both coming from which is also a really cool thing about the movie um and again, just like, I like the score because it just has a nice eclectic sort of feel. Like there's all these different sort of like, um, there's another scene where Orlando Bloom, like he's, he's inherited his father's estate in Jerusalem. And like, there's a scene where he's building a well and you hear this like sort of Middle East, it's like some kind of Middle Eastern guitar or something, but he's building a well and it's kind of a nice sort of like heavenly paradise type of song. And, you know, there's kids running and like, you know, Orlando and the servants are digging up like, they're digging up wells to find this water and it's kind of like a nice blissful scene and again it's a different it's it's it shows harry gregson williams's range as a composer um it's just like it's it's, it's incredible it's just like a media media it's basically a medieval score and i've never never since then heard anything like that except for maybe the last duel and again which is another interesting movie but like the collaboration between scott and gregson williams is just like it's it's it was fascinating. It's a, it's a fascinating film that I think got, um, that when I think it was released, it just didn't do well at the box office and got trumped by like all these other failing epics. Like I know Alexander and Troy came out the same, around the same yeah. time. It was like, you remember that time? It was like for, after Lord of the Rings, like epics were the, were the new thing. But I think after those two movies flopped, Kingdom of Heaven came and people were just tired of it, but it turned out to be a really good movie. <laughs> I, I actually liked Alexander, but um, I, I, yeah, Oliver Stone trying that. That was actually, I thought it was interesting, Alexander. I, 
Troy, I still kind of enjoy. I, I still, I don't know. I, I don't, I, it's a little too lengthy for me, but I still, yeah. I don't know. But no, I, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven probably. I think I was at a friend's house and they just put it on DVD, on a DVD, but I definitely enjoyed it. I, I don't remember some yeah. of the knickknacks you're pinpointing here, but. Um, totally okay. It's a long movie. I wouldn't, I mean, anyone <laughs> out there, so. But I will say that it is a great movie if you decide to sit down and watch it. Like, don't watch the director's cut because I don't think I've, I did see the theatrical cut and it's okay. But I think the, 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 the director's cut just has like more nuances from the characters and has like more story points that sort of connect everything in a way that makes sense. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great movie. Okay. I'll take your word for it. Uh, well, my number three. I had to put him on here. This is his first of two. He's in my honorable mentions. Uh, the maestro himself, Ennio Marconi. Yes. May he rest in peace. He passed away last year. He, was, he, he is literally one of the best uh, film composers of all time. Yeah. Uh, uh, on some of the most iconic scores, uh, you know, the, the Ecstasy of Gold from Good to Bad and the Ugly. Yeah. Uh, Once upon a time in the West, which I, we talked about a couple episodes. Our first episode we did, which was on my list. Uh, he has phenomenal scores in that. The Hateful Eight was really good too. The ha- yeah, Hateful Eight was yeah. good. Um, the, the, the thing at the beginning. Which, the what? The thing which he did with John Carpenter. Yeah. Um, the theme at the beginning of Hateful Eight with the frozen crucifix was just like yeah, oh, so good. I there's some any of score. There's some any of scores that I just get stuck in my head. Like he has like the most powerful earworms. Yeah, <laughs> my honorable mention is actually uh, when I get to it, I'll, I'll mention it. But uh, it's I didn't even know he did it. Um, but this one is something again, just like Christine. I feel like I listen to on a weekly basis. <laughs> I love to put it on when I'm writing. I love to put it on when I'm going out for like a nice evening walk, which is something I've been doing lately. Again, I did it a lot during COVID. Um, but I've been doing it a lot again. I love to put this on. It just kind of puts me in a nice zone. And that is the song called The Trio, which you see in the climax of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And have you, if you have, if you want to feel and hear what a showdown sounds like in a song, (laughs) it's this song. Look, in the good, the bad, and the ugly, we obviously have like a three-way shootout about to happen um, in the climax of the film, but I I don't really want to talk about that. I honestly haven't seen the film in like five years, Um, but this track is just, just builds and builds and builds for about seven and a half minutes to one of the like most climactic last 30 seconds and it just leaves you wanting more but at the same time i'm like nah i don't want any more because that was so fucking badass that like i'm good with the song ending on that this is just you know 
kind of his typical, you know, 1960, late 1960s, 19, early 1970s kind of spaghetti Western vibe, which he is, which is something that really kind of put him on the map um, with just those, you know, the, those, um, those guitar riffs on the acoustics, yeah. um, the horns, it just, I mean, I'm obviously going to just, I almost want to drop the whole song in right here for people to listen to, to, cause we just, should we just do a montage of us staring each other off with like that, <laughs> with, the tri- with the trio song playing and then just, just pulling out like Nerf guns. <laughs> it's just, it's such a, again, it's just like the definition of a showdown in musical terms. And it's like three parts. Like it starts out very slow with just these long, these just huge thuds of like acoustic guitar riffs. I don't know what actually kind of guitar it is, um, but I, I know it's not electric. And it just has this big build with an orchestra behind it. And like the release are these just huge horns yeah, that play this melody. And it's just like, it's melancholy. It's beautiful. It's tragic. favorite part of the song is like i said the very ending which they kind of in the second verse towards the climax like the second part of the song you know it's like he teases it a little bit like you get to hear like 10 seconds of it and then it just goes flat and you hear that ding 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 like it's like a little yeah. bell i don't you hear the drums go bum, bum, yeah and you hear like the, the drums kick in like and <laughs> Our sound effects are not doing yeah. it justice because it's such a well, fucking. I, it's so great, I feel like but then the whole thing after after just we're like building up a rhythm. I'm like, oh, I want to sing the whole thing. <laughs> and but once it gets to that final um, climax in the final yeah. 30, 40 seconds, and it just like you can tell, like I just picture the little little Ennio Marconi, this little Italian guy with an orchestra surrounding him just fucking waving and going ape shit while the orchestra just gives you this like epic sounding like charge into battle it yeah. sounds like and then it just ends Like not on a, not on like a pin drop, but it just kind of like hits a note and finishes. I mean, hearing that live, like how can you not give a standing ovation? Like after it, he's he really is one of the best 
I don't even know where he sits. He's got to sit in my top three of film composers. I mean, I, I was legitimately like moved when he passed away. I mean, I knew he was very old. I knew yeah. he was, I knew he was frail, but um, I mean, he won, he got to win an Oscar at the end of his life, which was awesome to yeah. see. He won for hate. That was one of my favorite Oscar moments. Like when mm-hmm. he, won the Oscar. he was sitting and, like, next to John Williams when he won, I think. Yeah. And then yeah. he got up on stage and Quincy Jones handed him the Oscar and I think they embraced each other. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, this is the best moment ever. It's just like, he's, you know, he did it for, gosh, 50, 60 years. He, he worked yeah. pretty much up until the day, not up until the day he died, but he was still working till very close to the end of his life. And, you know, I, I don't know like what more words I can say about him. I've, I feel like, you know, I always was aware of his music with, you know, iconic little, little jingles, like from good, the bad and the ugly and millions of other spaghetti Westerns from that era. Another one that I like of his, and it's not on my list at all, but um, there was a, there was a Quentin Tarantino who's obviously one of his biggest fans and have worked with him. Yeah. Um, Put it in kill bill volume two. When bill dies, he put the, it, it, the songs from a uh, Navajo Joe, I think it was called. It was with Burt Reynolds. Oh yeah. Another spaghetti Western. Right? Yeah. And yeah. he, um, it's the song that's pretty much the theme to Bill's death when he's about to die. Yeah. And it is just, a, it's one of the most beautiful. Again, it just has this like epic charge into battle climax, which I guess is just his shtick. I don't know. If you want to say anything about him, go ahead. But the, the trio is look it up yeah. on YouTube. Just put your headphones, get ready to fucking blast it. Cause it is just a mm, just piece of art. So I'm going to attempt to say something poetic and probably fail horribly, but I'll try anyway. So nah, I do it all the time. I do it on a weekly basis. here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the music is not only another character and the good, the bad, the ugly, but it also feels like the fourth gunslinger in the trio scene yeah um yeah and it's it's fascinating to think that like the whole like it's three people staring each other off and going for their guns but when you put any of morricone's music it feels like an action scene even though there's just stillness and tension going on but the music is just kind of driving everything forward it's like you saw like i love any of morricone's like super jazzy like uh, like that was really that, good. Thanks. So, and I think that he bar, I think he modeled that sound after a coyote when the coyote goes or something like that. Like he kind of incorporates that into the our the beloved main theme. Um, but it's like it's it's so good, and also like you said, ecstasy of gold, just a, a super iconic musical interlude about a guy running through a graveyard looking for a fucking <laughs> gravestone <laughs> that like. On paper, it would probably not sound cinematic at all, but when you have Sergio Leone, Leone shooting it and any more kind of doing the score, it becomes like the greatest like two to three minutes of like a guy searching for a gold in a graveyard ever. Like it's, it's like a really nice kind of pulpy, experimental, jazzy sort of like reinvention mm-hmm. of like Western, of, of Western music that it's just like, that I think, I think it's one of the reasons like the, the movies hold up and, I get the impression that people are not into Westerns as much as they is, as like, I could be wrong. I don't know. But like, I feel like when people were to, were to revisit old Westerns, they probably go toward the Sergio films first, just because I yeah. think they have that sort of 
that have that pulp entertainment value. It's not, it's not too heavy. It's not too. I mean, I, I love John Ford films, but like, I know yeah, like a good yeah. introductory to the Western, especially for today's audience is like, nobody's going to go watch the searchers. Like if when they're 15, I mean, yeah. I would, but you know, Hey, it is what it is. I like, I like John Ford, John Wayne movies too. I have kind of an ambivalent like attitude toward John Wayne. Cause he was also like a racist from what I heard. Yeah, I, I he, do too. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty by the way. Cause I, I still study John Ford films. When was yeah. Like, have you seen the film? Uh, trumbo i did yeah yeah like where they have john wayne as a character and he's just such a piece of shit (laughs) Um, seriously yeah man we're getting off topic but yeah real quick i know you're absolutely if what has come out about him in the last five years is true yeah i i do still watch i still i i don't religiously watch john wayne films but yeah i i I, you know he was kind of He was he was a piece of shit for sure. I do and I do watch. I mean, there are actors out there. I won't I won't get too much into it because we're trying to make this podcast fun. There's obviously mm-hmm. artists we like, but they also are pieces of shit, and you know it's a whole different conversation. But um, another episode. There it is, right there. Yeah. Um, pieces of so, yeah. shit who make stuff we like. <laughs> I, will, I I will going back to Ennio. Like I I absolutely think he's definitely among like the best of the best of the best composers like of all time yeah there's just yeah there's just something kind of fun and childlike about his scores that i just find really really charming like but yeah i don't know it's he's he's great like you put me in a trance like there's something yeah they, they put me if i need to get in the zone on something like if i need to tackle something like tackle something big i gotta get to work on something I like putting on a song like this. I, I don't know. Like, cause yeah. it just has this like do or die mentality about it. Cause it's this shootout that's, that's going down. Um, no, it, it's great. He, he will appear in my honorable mentions um, in a little bit, but uh, what's your number two moving on? Well, as long as we're talking about Ennio, I do have a film of his that I do want to bring up, which I didn't take any notes on. So I'm probably going to just be riffing the whole time, but fuck it. Right. So I put, <laughs> I put uh, 1987's The Untouchables. seen that film uh yeah man de palma Uh, fuck yeah dude oh man yeah so probably one of the best things i've ever seen kevin costner and also i he's 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 great in it too like there's there's actually something about kevin costner that i'm starting to like i've seen some of his 80s films and he's 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 got some range as an actor Mm -hmm. i i was surprised i i thought he was kind of a boring dry actor but i really I, I felt like he kind of missed his mark a little bit in JFK. I don't, I don't know. There's some. He's more of like an avatar for like JFK. He's just the guy, like he's he's the guy, kind of like seeing all of the 
like listening yeah. to all the theories about the JFK assassination and there's some lines he had that were cringeworthy, but I didn't think it was that yeah. <laughs> but anyway, untouchables. Ennio Morricone, yes. Um, I just want to start off by saying that the opening theme of the Untouchables is when I first saw the movie, I was just like, What the fuck is this? Like another tone setting like score. Bum yeah. bum 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 like it was like a weird kind of threatening feeling, but also just really catchy. And like, it was just, I, I never, again, I never heard a, I never heard a score like this one before, even in like, even, even with the setting of the film, which is the prohibition era, it was just really, it was just a really cool theme. Right. So then, you, you know, so the theme is playing, it's your like, there's like cymbals or something and like drums and like violins and orchestra i don't even know how to describe it but you know what i mean you're gonna listen to the you listen to the theme and it's just like it immediately draws you in it's a world building it's a world <laughs> what's the i'm trying to think of a, i'm trying to think of a i'm trying to think of a way to describe this like a hyphenated a hyphenated like two words a world dragging in i don't know i give up it built it, it drags you into the world in a very in a cool way it brings you into the world of the movie yeah yeah um and I also mentioned, have you ever watched any of the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award um, shows? Yeah, I so, watched. Yeah, go ahead. So like, and I actually want to get more to that later. I'll, I'll, it'll make sense why. So like the, 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 the music when um, Kevin Costner and Connery and like and, and Andy Garcia and the guy are charging at the, the trucks on the bridge and you hear the do 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 you know what i'm talking about yeah, like yeah it's like uplifting that, that, yeah that uplifting yeah sort of there's another score. hit of that like when they kind of they're, they're in the middle of the road or something at night yeah. and like yeah. they all kind of turn around at the same time and it, it's a little cheesy but i love it dude it's such a rousing score it's just like it's like a perfect kind of like feel good adventurous the good guys are winning against the bad guys type of score like i i heard that like i i hear that all the time almost like on like oscar shows or like the afi shows where they they're honoring the guy and they give you a montage of all yeah. their films and they play the untouchables music but that 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 music cue was just like phenomenal and i love and, and again showing ennio morricone's range as a film composer and like and also like we got to talk about like the scenes of like i think the assassin you know um walking around sean connery's apartment and you hear the harmonica going yeah that's a tense scene yeah yeah and it's so it's so good and like and the whole i wrote let me see what else did i write down um robert and de niro is al capone obviously do i need to tell you guys what the the synopsis of untouchables is kevin um if you want to, but I feel like a lot of people yeah. at least know of it. Okay. Kevin Costner and Sean Connery are trying to take down Al Capone. That's basically it. De Niro plays Capone. So it's a gangster movie, but we're not rooting for the gangsters. You're no, like, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of the first movie. Nah, it wasn't the first movie, but like, I love it when sometimes, and I saw this like, oddly enough, Kevin Costner was in it. 
I love every now and then a movie comes out where it's like, you know, this isn't going to be a movie where it's glorifying the gangsters. Like, no, this is about us kicking some, you know, organized crime ass. But like yeah. Netflix did that movie, The Highwaymen, when they were, it was about the, the Texas Rangers that were going after um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And oh. that, that was kind of their angle. It's just like, no, these were pieces of shit. We're not going to glorify them. We're coming. We're going to get it. This is a movie about us taking down the real bad guys. And yeah. The Untouchables, like, felt like kind of a standout movie in, you know, a long era of gangster films, probably. I don't know. So, um, of course, Robert De Niro playing Al Capone, he's incredible. And I think, and the scene where, first of all, just this has nothing to do with the music, but I think the opening shot, the overhead shot of him get, getting shaved at the barbershop and the camera just kind of like, kind of not, it, it dollies down on him. And then he goes into his monologue. It's, it's just a really cool, like intro to like, a really cool intro to a, to a, to a film. That's like, why I love Brian De Palma. Yeah. dude i don't even know what happened to brian DePaul. i feel like he just doesn't get enough credit as a filmmaker i think i know why but like he just doesn't do those prestigious films he just does the pulp entertainment hitchcockian thing yeah he's so good at it he's like like, he's kind of was a second coming of hitchcock i feel yeah but i feel like he has a style that can like that you could that is on par with like scorsese or spielberg like just from watching some of his recent stuff too but it's so great like and i think and also just to know ennio morricone once i think the opening the opening title sequence ends and you and it ends on a boom is when you actually go to that overhead shot and i'm like wow this is cool i cannot wait to see where this goes and also like um de niro talking about you know how he needs a good he's talking making a he's making an analogy to baseball Mm-hmm. And he's like, and then he holds the bat, and he and he just fucking beats the guy to death. And then afterward, you see, you hear like a, boom, like an ominous, like eerie no from Enio, and it goes din 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 din. And then like again, we do an overhead shot, and the and the camera dollies upward on the on the on the guy that just got bludgeoned to death. And I'm thinking, man, this is cool. It's like operatic and violent, but it's like such a great like. It's, it's great to see. I love a De Palma and Morricone collaboration because you're getting like these nice little visual and musical punctuation punctuations, you know, in, in, in their films. Was this the only time they did a movie together? I thought you know? they did another one. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong entirely. I thought I, I keep thinking that I feel like they did, but I don't remember which one. Oh, they did um, uh, Casualties of War, actually, which is not not nothing like the untouchables it's, yeah oh, not nowhere near as pulpy or entertaining as that movie it's a beautiful score very very heart-wrenching and sad but it's um but um yeah man the untouchables just kind of hits everything every every note of like great action great suspense has a very catchy catchy tune it's it's wonderful i like i also like when kevin costner is like confronting the assassin on the roof and the assassin's like, you know, your friend squealed like a pig when he died, or screamed like a pig. And Kevin Costner just pushes them off the fucking, off the building. He's like, hey, hey, ah! did he scream anything like that? Yeah, did he sound anything like that? Sound anything like that? They're gonna burn you, buddy. Yeah? Yeah. I'm gonna come see you burn, you son of a bitch, because you killed my friend. He died like a pig. What did you say? I said that your friend died screaming like a stuck Irish pig. Now you think about that when I beat the rat. 
Yeah. And then you and then your score just kind of rises and just kind of crescendos. And I'm like, and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is great. Yeah, it's I gotta revisit that one. That's that's just a fun 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 everything the great yeah. obviously the the famous on the stairs scene with the baby and andy garcia yeah yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah. that's such a fucking great that's that's another iconic scene very tense i believe obviously i think his score is all over that scene it's the score kind of like like the movie when when that when the baby carriage is going down the stairway in slow motion i think the score kind of goes it slows that like it kind of it kind of cues in like in pockets it goes din, 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 yeah din, din, din. like yeah the way even the way the score slowed down with that with that visual tension is great all right untouchable right. um my number two was something i was gonna i completely forgot about and it really made its way up the charts here because i put it in my number two um, I, I might butcher the last name, but this is actually the second director and film composer on my list. And it's Ben Zeitlin or Zeitlin for Beasts of a Southern Wild. Oh. And um, so this, I, I actually moved something into the honorable mentions, but, um, and put this in there. Uh, for anybody who has never seen Beasts of a Southern Wild, I don't think it's streaming anywhere right now. I have it. I have it on DVD. Um, it is probably one of the most beautiful films I've seen in the last ten years. I don't want to butcher the name of the little girl in it, <laughs> um, but she was. I think I don't think she won, but I think she, if she would have won, I think she would have um, become the youngest ever to win an Oscar for Best Actress. But um, she was nominated for best actress for this film. Uh, it's, this is just one of the most magical little movies with nobody famous in it. And uh, I didn't really get it the first time I saw it. Uh, I, I don't really know what they were going for. So basically the, the, the film is about um, this. I think she was like four or five when the, the little girl in it, when they made it. Wow. Yeah. And she is a, power maybe she was six regardless but that would be freaky if a five-year-old could act that well and get like an oscar nomination yeah and i think by the time it was released she was like seven or eight but um so the plot basically is is like a big it takes place kind of like below what's below the levee basically in louisiana so like out in the swamps out in the bayou out in the middle of nowhere where there's people that are like not living even on electricity just living in just huts and like worn down trailers and just living off the land yeah and i'm sure there are people really out there like that that live like that and like a big storm comes and everything and um you know wipes out her village and long story short it's really about the bond with her and her father and her father is this tough as nails guys who guy who i'm getting to the film the score in a minute but um uh she he's very tough on her but not in like a mean or cruel way like it might come off like he's cruel to her but he's just very very tough on her and they have a beautiful arc together in the climax of the film which is and the score of this movie is very um epic orchestra not epic i don't want to say i'm you know it's not an epic but it's a very independent film that has an epic undertone to it 
and the score has a very orchestra orchestra to it but mixes in like jazz and blues of you know louisiana and that area in the gulf coast and the main theme to it that you hear kind of what takes you into the end credits of the film has got to be one of the most beautiful six and a half minutes i've ever heard Again, this is a score that I will go out of my way to track down on YouTube and just put it on my headphones. And it just, it puts you in just such a good mood because it's so beautiful and how it builds and builds and builds and has like all these great release points. Um, Can't wait for everybody to hear this when I insert it here. It's just that there's so many great little um, little moments in the movie that there's so she she doesn't grow up with there's a great scene towards the middle of the third act of the movie when she run the little girl runs away with her friends to like some somewhere I don't I don't know it's kind of funny like you know this takes place like out in the bayou but you could think you could honestly think that this movie takes place on a distant planet just kind of how fantasy the movie feels at times and the message is conveying to the audience. But there's a great scene where she goes out to the middle of nowhere, finds some little bar and grill. And now she's without a mother. She's never met her mother. And she, there's this just dreamlike sequence where this woman walks in and just like makes her some fried fish or something. Fried gator, I think it was. I think it was fried gator. I remember, yeah. I remember that scene. I'm like, I always wanted to try gator. And I just remember it. I've tried it. It's not that bad. It's not great, but um, <laughs> I've but I just remember there's just like it's a very dreamlike scene, and you know without them saying it that this woman could potentially be her mother. And oh yeah, she's not though the woman maybe isn't aware of that this is her daughter but you could tell the little girl she is kind of she feels this vibe with her and this slow melody that goes throughout the scene like really kind of enhances you questioning like oh that's her that, that's got to be her mom that's got to be her mom <laughs> and nothing comes of it like you know they just have this embrace at the end and then she leaves and I just, I remember the scene just leaving me absolutely breathless and it's so simple. And th- the score has these very simple beats that it hits from time to time. Um, has a lot of, you know, that, you know, has like a really strong, there's a, there's a great party scene that goes on with like the whole village just hanging out, having a good time, getting drunk, lighting off fireworks and shit. And there's just these thick violins that play throughout it. And the, I guess the, 
you know, again, the filmmaker Ben Zeitlin, again, I hope I don't butcher the guy's name. He's only made this film and he has a film that came out in 2020 that has kind of the same vibe, but it's called Wendy. And it's about like, you know, it's the Peter Pan story basically, but. Oh. And I think it like was a flash in the pan. I remember hearing about it and then COVID happened and then it disappeared, but I actually think it's on HBO max. I've been meaning to check it out and it has a very beast of the sun wild vibe because I think he scores his own films. Um, so he just knows how to set like a really good uh, fantasy atmosphere in his movies. Um, but they're done at such an indie film kind of level. I think beast of the Southern wild was, four million which you know to you and me that's a lot of money but um, but still like i you know for nobody famous and everything and I, I think it was done through like the sundance institute uh this was just one of the big independent films hits of 2012 and it, it almost it got nominated for a lot of stuff that year at the oscars i don't think it really walked away with much but to see a little movie like this with kind of these like homegrown um not homegrown um what the word I'm thinking of? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but just to see a little film like this go the distance like that and make an impact like that on its audience does, did really well. And again, like the, the main theme that hits in the end credits is just some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard. Yeah. We are now both at our number ones. But before we do that, uh, I have three honorable mentions you have three honorable mentions. Yeah. Um, just like you do your three, I'll do my three. Just, you know, plow through your three real quick. So like, this is, I'm just, uh, it's really, this is really more of a, a, a main theme that I like um, more so than the actual score itself. But I just wanted to bring it up because it's so cool. But it's a, it was a movie made in 1996 by John Woo called Broken Arrow. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With John Travolta and Christian Slater, folks. Um, it is a very fun movie. It's also so incredibly bad, but it has a lot. It's, no, it's not. No. Action. <laughs> it's chock-full of action. I believe there are six helicopter explosions in this film. Okay. Yeah, I think you're <laughs> right. And then they have ex-football player Howie Long in it as one of the <laughs> When he that tried to make an cool. attempt at an acting career in the 90s. It wasn't that bad, you know? His reaction to the chopper getting blown up was like, oh my, that warhead blew up that chopper. <laughs> no shit. Cringiest, like, almost like he, it sounded like he had a low IQ. And it, I mean, in the commercials, he sounds like a normal person, like his, whatever commercials he does. He's good but, at football commentating. We'll give him that. Yeah, he's, yeah. No, no, no shade on Howie Long, by the way. Um, but, oh man, so... The opening theme to Broken Arrow is amazing. You've heard it, right? So it's Hans Zimmer's like it's it's this kind of like what's the word I'm looking for? It's this the hunt. It's this kind of like ominous, haunting, but mischievous. Like you hear, I've I've heard this melody in a bunch of Zimmer scores. Like ding, 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 ding. You hear that, and then you hear guitars riffing in, and then suddenly like this like this sort of like symphonic like boom 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 you're gonna you're gonna play this you better play this yeah, it's no I, I will it's
I, I love it. I, I, I loved it. The, and the scene where Travolta and Slater are in the boxing ring and like they're fighting each other and Travolta's just like, hey man, you got to make a left, then a right. You think I'm making a right, you make another left. And then like he's pummeling the shit out of Christian Slater and like the music is building and it's like such a great, strange score. And it's like, there's kind of like elements of this kind of like backwoods country sort of like melodic theme that kind of reminded me of Thelma and Louise a little bit, but I feel like it's it's kind of like Zimmer taking what he's learned and trying to just make concoct this crazy experimental score. It's like, it's such a great fucking score that it's one of those things where I feel like Hans Zimmer has made a lot of great scores in shitty movies. And like, part of me wishes that like they were just in better movies. Cause that was one of those, that was one of those themes that I wish was in a much better movie. And like, I know, I mean, I love John Woo. He's another one of my favorite directors. Of course, like there's a bunch of other movies that are better than Broken Arrow, but like, I still enjoy watching Broken Arrow for its sheer stupidity. Um, so, so Broken Arrow, really just the Broken Arrow theme that was kind of on my list. Um, if you, I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll, I'm just gonna like, I'm just gonna rapid fire a few before I get to my other two, if that's cool. But Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, love it. Great, great orchestra, great sort of like Russian music, like the, all the themes are great. Such an eclectic range. Um, James Horner's Aliens, I obviously love too, just has a great adventurous like horror film score. Uh, Bernard Herrmann, Vertigo. I know we haven't talked about Bernard Herrmann enough, but he's obviously a pillar in cinema. And yeah, I mean, him and Hitchcock, like, like yeah, really that's a good over. duo. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they are, they are the dynamic duo of like cinema, in my opinion. Um, and uh, leave any that. Lalo Schifrin's Dirty Harry, I really like that score a lot. Uh, Close Encounters. All right, so um, I'll get to my, I'll get to my two. So this film is a, a uh, Western that was made by Richard Donner in 1994, starring Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster. I'm talking, of course, of, Ma- of Maverick. I listened to this right before we started recording. <laughs> it's a great score like and it's it's so the, the composer is randy newman and it's just a, a nice it's a fun western kind of score um that has a sort of like very upbeat and i don't i don't actually remember much about the movie i i mean just to just just for it's basically about this cowboy who's like it's it's kind of like a series of like cool adventures that he goes on he's trying to he's trying to earn money to go into this like poker game that's happening like at this like competition or something and that's and basically it's it's just a, it's a fun movie it's 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 a great kind of mel gibson richard donner collaboration um and like i mean i i mean i mean of course we know of course mel gibson obviously has taken a turn for the worse in his career and so you know um whether you love him or hate him if you hate him then i respect that i'm not gonna you know i will not argue otherwise i completely understand i I didn't know that like there was a time when we all loved Mel Gibson and I enjoyed his movies and you know this was just one of those um 
it was really one of those scores that just it was just it had like the best of like a great western with pulp entertainment with sort of like harmless fun and like there i mean i'm not in terms of like um in terms of adventure like there i my favorite one of my favorite cues is my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when um they're on a stagecoach in the desert and the guy <laughs> the guy driving the stagecoach dies and so and so maverick has to jump on the horses and like leap on the horse and try to like pull over the stage coast and you hear and you get again you hear the theme you hear the dun 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 that's like this big epic orchestral theme along with this amazing stunt that like is happening in the like in the scene and like it's just it was, it was just a great like two minutes of just like pure cinema and like i get enjoyment it's one of my go-to youtube uh go to youtube watch movie clip scenes like that i'll sometimes play over and over and over and over again because <laughs> it's just so fucking good and like i mean there's a bunch of cool like there, there's a bunch of cool um randy newman compositions throughout the whole film and it kind of reminded me a little bit of toy story and like i, I get kind of a nostalgia from from listening to like any randy newman because like he does i think he did a few of the early pixar films if i'm not mistaken i kind of i get reminded of that when i watched maverick i watched maverick like I mean, probably close to high school or college, but it really kind of brings nostalgia. Like I, uh, R.I.P. Richard Donner, man. Like he was such a brilliant director. Yeah. Like when he hits, when he made a lot of great movies, but I feel like he made a share of great movies that were underrated and also just masterpieces. Like, of course, the Lethal Weapons and the Goonies and like, Superman. I don't know if you've seen the Bruce Willis movie, 16 Blocks, but that was like a freaking awesome. Yeah. Richard yeah, that Donner, was fun. That like. Yeah, it kind of just got kind of fell by the wayside, but it's it's a great it's a great film. Um, so you're gonna like laugh your ass off. I don't want to leave this conversation. I don't think it's a Tyler Carey podcast without talking about The Rock. Um, <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> I can keep it nice and sure. <laughs> Why? God damn it! <laughs> I think we're three for three on mentioning The Rock when we do a show together. <laughs> I'll keep I'll keep it short and sweet but so basically like I again kind of going back to Hans Zimmer I think he's just really good at like it is a great score yeah it's yeah and like like from the beginning when you're listening to like the super patriotic sort of themes of Ed Harris like in the fallen comrades and him going to see his wife at the cemetery like he's really like you 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 get a sense that he's good at giving you a nice dramatic score but then he's also good at giving you this like super action and action adventure score when Nicolas Cage is in the in the um when he when he's trying to defuse the bomb like in the in the in the cell or something like that yeah and um i'll try i'll try to divert away from the stuff we've already talked about <laughs> but um obviously obviously the shower scene we both love again. i cannot give that order i'm not gonna repeat that order yeah that hall and the way it builds and, what like, the hell is wrong with you man <laughs> oh there it is we're gonna we, we all right no no up. that's all we're doing that's all we're doing and like but also, like, it, I, I didn't, I didn't really like th- think about this before. But the way he incorporates the choir of like the music of the oh, oh, oh yeah, like it's like whoa, this is hitting me deeply. Um, Sean Connery's themes of like of the dun, 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 like kind of feels like the heart of the movie a little bit, but it's kind of got a nice, a nice kind of emotional like warm sort of score if that makes sense and like i think the scenes when he's with his daughter and you kind of get a sense of him like the score really complements like him as a character and makes him three-dimensional much like kind of like 
um, how do I say this? I mean, like the whole thing, I, I, I'm going to say this. So like one of the, one of the music cues I love listening to over and over again is when they're, um, when the seals are scuba diving underneath the rock and hear that. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool note. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I feel like, I feel like the guitar strumming, which is Hans Zimmer saying like, I'm just going to have fun with this. Fuck it. And he's just like, he's going for it. It's just such a cool, like. It really hits a good climax on the yeah. green smoke scene. Yeah. Like right when like they drop the bomb on Alcatraz and like Nicolas Cage lets out that roar. Like, yeah. 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 The dun, 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 dun. almost kind of like it's victorious but like at what cost kind of like music i don't know but no it's 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 great and the whole like the way that the the movie just kind of wraps everything together at the end with the you know i think i don't know if it was like a piccolo playing when when connery and cage are parting ways but like i you feel a real sense of unification like and like the sun will rise again and everything is yeah their friendship is sealed and they're like you know they're they're buds for life but um but yeah, man. <laughs> All right. Once again, The Rock. Once uh, again, The Rock. <laughs> we should just like do little mini episodes where we just talk about scenes in The Rock till we're like done with the movie. <laughs> I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not, we're not going to talk uh, about The Rock until it gets bored. I was like, I just like talking about The Rock. So. Oh, yeah. Um, so my honorable mentions uh, real quick. Uh, my first one is uh, the Ennio Morricone. Um, I didn't know this. And I don't know if he scored the entire film because this is Quentin Tarantino. Like he, he mixes and mashes stuff and reuses stuff from time to time. I guess he did the score for the main theme for Inglorious Bastards.
Oh, and wow. like, it's a very, um, it's a very World War II, Nazi occupied France kind of sound to it. Um, it's the, it's the music that you hear in the end credits after they've uh, carved a swastika into Christoph Waltz's <laughs> forehead. And I think I just made my masterpiece. Yeah, how, <laughs> what, what's the line he says? How do you get to, uh, um, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? practice yeah. <laughs> and, but it's this like kind of slow it just the the this you know take it for what it is this song sounds like the theme song of a nazi it's this just slow like yeah. piano build of just a couple notes and then it just builds and builds and then just like some strings kick in and it just goes dun 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 it feels like a, a movie like like a 1940s film about world war ii like it yeah, yeah. It, it just it, it feels cool and it just has these great like striking sounds of like a set of violins just hitting a note and then another set hit another note and it, it just has this weird build to this like weird like like you know 19 whatever austrian dance music you hear the climax of the score oh yeah yeah, um but i I just again you know i didn't even know he did that till maybe a few years ago um my next one um, i really liked there's a quick note i loved at the beginning when he when they were doing that beethoven song i forgot what it's called but you hear that and it kind of veers into an any more crony like yeah got the ugly kind of feel too and i was like oh that's that's kind of what um uh sergio did with uh a few dollars more with that yeah uh, um my next one uh originally was on my list i took it off but i still love it and i haven't seen the movie in since maybe i was a kid but they bring just kind of like the afi story you had with the untouchables yeah um to the Stars by Randy Edelman. It's from the movie Dragonheart. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, again, I don't think I've seen Dragonheart since I was like 10 or 11. And I think that's a really good movie from the 90s. Um, I maybe should revisit it to make sure I still feel that way. It looked good. I kind of want to check it out just from reading the. Synopsis. I mean, the great Sean Connery, the late great Sean Connery, now we have oh, to say, unfortunately, uh, is the voice of a dragon and he is perfectly cast in it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> The, the song has this kind of very, again, like Beast of the Southern Wild, but, you know, more on like a big orchestra level that, you know, the studio can pay for, uh, has this just great epic score that starts very soft and has this just very, it just has like a very emotional, like you can't help but maybe get misty eyed listening to it, even on a blind listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just, it has a great climax. And the I always... I remember I was at Universal Studios uh, down here in Orlando, maybe a few months after moving here. And my, my wife and I went to, we were there one night and we were walking around the park. And I, I don't know if they do this at Universal in, in Los Angeles or in Hollywood, 
Um, but here they have like this big screen that comes up out of the water and they project, um, you know, all these universal films and they do kind of like this, you know, homage to everything that they've made. And they play this song over it and it's fucking beautiful. And I think like the Oscars have used this song when they do like, you know, a big like in memoriam or something or a look back on whatever, some landmark, you know, some time of movies. And it just has this beautiful climax and I love it. And I, again, I go out of my way to listen to it, but again, I have to revisit Dragonheart to see really how it fits. And I'm sure it fits good if people use it for other things. Um, I've seen, I've heard that song in so many trailers and once I, yeah, it's been rehashed. Oh, that's where it came from. Yeah. It's been rehashed. I I, I hunted that thing down forever. And I was like, where the fuck is this song from? (laughs) Um, My last honorable mention is, uh, one of my favorite sports movies of all time. I, I don't really watch a lot of sports films. I, I, I mean, I, I really only kind of watch football in real life. That's really my only sport I flock to, but this is a football movie. Um, but I think it falls in line with something like Rocky or Field of Dreams. Um, Rudy with, uh, from 1993, uh, composed by uh, Jerry Goldsmith, which is a name I've heard, you know, all over the place. I, I can't think yeah. off the top of head, top of my head, what else he scored. But um, just like a perfect blend of, you know, a music that definitely sounds like someone chasing their dreams, which is what the, I don't know if you know the plot, but for anybody who doesn't know what Rudy's about, Rudy's based on a true story about a, you know, a kid from the Midwest who all he wanted to do was play football at Notre Dame. And, you know, no matter what he, you know, like, you know, again, like he had a family that really wasn't supportive. It was just, it was a typical, like, no, yeah, that's fine kid, but you're going to end up working in a steel mill for the rest of your life. Anyway, like the rest of your family. No, he wanted to go to Notre Dame. He went to, you know, he went to, you know, he's, you know, Midwest 1970s, a lot of Catholic stuff. You know, he was Catholic. He ended up having to go to Holy cross and then transferring into Notre Dame. And there's this beautiful scene because he gets rejected time after time to get into Notre Dame and finally he gets an acceptance letter and the music on it, when he's reading the acceptance letter, if you don't fucking cry during it and all it is is he's reading a college acceptance letter. It's just so beautiful. And so now he can pursue his goal to try out for Notre Dame. And the thing about it is, is the true story is he never, the actual character, Rudy, he never was like a starter for the football team. He just wanted to be on the team and he goes all out in practice and, you know, gets the respect of all these, you know, division one starters, guys who are going to go pro. And finally he gets to dress for a game, the final game of his senior year. And he gets put in for, I think, two plays a kickoff and he plays one play at the end and it's known as the Rudy game. And the whole stadium was chanting for him. And 
Yeah, the, the, I think it was the team on the sidelines that started going, Rudy, Rudy. And so the whole stadium's chanting for him. He makes a play where he, like, sacks the quarterback. And the game was over, and they picked him up, and they carried him off the field. And the place was going apeshit. And the, once once they, the cue of once they lift him up to carry it off and this final score kicks in, again, how you can't fucking cry is you're not human. You don't have a soul. You don't have any ounce of humanity in your fiber or whatever. (laughs) But... But like this movie also was an introduction. A, Vin, a young Vince Vaughn is in it. A young oh, John yeah. Favreau. Oh, Favreau, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Favreau is in it. He plays yeah. like Rudy's buddy. Rudy's played by Sean Astin. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, I think there's a few other people in there. Um, oh, Ned Beatty plays uh, Rudy's father. Oh, he's a great actor. I love yeah, him. he's a great actor. Um, a few other recognizable character actors are in it. But re- regardless, Jerry Goldsmith's score of this is a beautiful blend of like emotion and you know, when you're being in pursuit of something you really care about and want in life and giving you also that like sports um, you know, like the gridiron football, like, and there's, um, there's a couple, I want to say there's a certain cue in it that you hear in sports movies, like people have robbed it and put it in their sports movie to this day. I don't know the name of the song, but yeah, I feel like anybody listening to this and knows Rudy knows what I'm talking about. So Anyway, we have reached the culmination. Uh, what is your final pick? I don't think any discussion about composers is complete without talking about the great John Williams. Um, he's obviously made, he's had 50 plus years of iconic pieces of artistic, musical, magical genius that has forever ingrained into our like childhoods and even our adult lives like and he's brought so much magic to us and I mean he's obviously one of the best and you know and trying to figure out like which movie to pick in his 50 plus year career it was very very difficult and very fun and required a lot of soul searching actually not soul searching but (laughs) it was like what do you pick I was going to pick Star Wars, the Star Wars trilogy. And I will say that is obviously one of my favorite scores. Of course it is. Um, But, you know, I mean, everybody talks about Star Wars. I want to talk about something kind of more sort of unique that maybe people don't really hear about a lot of, but I'm, I'm, I'm blabbering. So like, you know, of course you could, of course you could pick Star Wars, obviously an amazing film. You could pick E.T. He's, you know, 
he's done what? He's done Home Alone. He, he's worked with Oliver Stone on JFK. He actually did a, a film with Hitchcock called Family Plot, which has a very quirky score, which was I, I absolutely love. And you should, I totally I know what recommend you're talking watching about, yeah. the film. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's like this, it was like a, there's like a vibraphone, I think, in the score that was just, it, it's like a really nice quirky experimental film from, from Hitchcock, like Hitchcock's last film. So, but uh, I decided to go with a movie that I have seen probably more times than any other movie or, 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 or one of them, but um and it is the third installment of a well-regarded franchise we all know and love called Indiana Jones. I am talking, of course, about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, starring a guy named Harrison Ford and, of course, Sean Connery, who seems to be appearing in a lot of our favorite lists. Yeah, especially on this episode. <laughs> and by the way, uh, Last Crusade yeah. uh, is my personal favorite. Yeah, it is. Yeah, my personal favorite, too. Um, and... Ooh, there's a lot to cover in this one. I'm going to look at my list. But one of the reasons I love this film is because just first and foremost, it is a great adventure film. That's also a great film about the search for a magical relic and a really great father and son story. Probably one of the best I've ever seen in a movie, like mm -hmm. among the best. And they do. And Williams is just has this uncanny like, ability. I think in, in, this, in this film specifically, it's like he was able to incorporate all of these themes into one score and really just embellish and kind of like lay out and build and like, and sort of mark. Like it feels like the, this score almost feels like, I mean, obviously the score is like part of the story, but it almost feels like there is a story within the score of like, and how these themes are developing, you know, throughout the whole movie. Um, so in short, you know, I like it cause there's adventure, there's heart, there's humor, there's a little bit of mysticism. And in the words of Sean Connery, there's illumination. So with that, um, let's, I'll go into my favorite scenes, which are a lot. There's obviously the first scene, which is the, um, the train, the, I mean, okay, look, I mean, of course, of course, we're, of course we're into, dun, 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 yeah. of course, of yeah, course. We can get past that. Everybody loves that. Yeah, we can get past that. Right. So like, um, so obviously the scene when uh, a young River Phoenix is playing um, Indy and like great casting choice, by the way, really great casting choice. He's just boy. He's boyish. It's, it's, it's lovely. So like he, he's, he's like being chased by these goons on a moving train and you hear a, kind of like a childish. It's like a very cute, almost like <laughs> it's a very, very kind of cute. Like it's almost like you want to look at the score and be like, Oh, isn't that adorable? But it's like so appropriate for like, who this like boy is and who, who he's about to become. So like. That was, that, that was a great score. Of course, the, um, the, the, the chase, uh, the, the boat chase in Venice like when they kind of when they're playing that Italian music and it's kind of like but it's also like the actual it's 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 an action movie but you hear the ding 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 and I was like It 
it's 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 great it was just a really playful like it's a, a playful riff on like the locate the time and the location and like what's going on and it's just like it's a great it's a great scene it's a great it's a great it's a great boat chase i love the scene when they go in between the two boats and then he's like are you crazy to go between them yeah he's like, go between them are you crazy <laughs> um so i'm gonna i'm what else um there was obviously i'm kind of going out of order and i'll I'll, and i'll make sense why but there's the tank chase um in the third act of course when you hear it's kind of like this militaristic like like this i think the whole 10 minutes of like this of indy infiltrating the tank saving his father and then just like trying to fight the nazis on top while be you know while being fired out by the tank like while he's on the horse i'm jumbling the whole scene but you know what i'm talking about it's just it's a great scene with like just a great buildup of like militaristic like you know hard edge like action extra mm-hmm. extravaganza stuff you know i'm starting to lose my words here but okay um, <laughs> I mean, like, there's there's so many great ones. Obviously, the one I'm kind of touching, I want to touch up on is the father-son theme and the Holy Grail theme. That um, Yeah. The climax which, of this movie is... Uh, sorry. Oh, I, yeah. But, like, when well, it kind of... When all that. those yeah. that stuff comes together, the, the music there is beautiful. Yeah. So, like, in the beginning, when, like, Indy is... When, when young Indy comes home and he sees Sean Connery, like, in his... Uh, working on his Grail diary... And uh, you hear that. You know, that's like you, you here you have the grail theme, of course, and it raises questions of not to get not to get too religious, obviously, but it's just like, you know, is this, you know, is, is this, does this thing exist? And like, what does it mean? And like, it's kind of like, I think Spielberg said in an interview, this movie is about leaps of faith. And I think he does a really great job as does John Williams about kind of making that something of a musical theme because like the quest of the grail becomes the quest become also is the search for his father. And like- And when Indy they, has to take a leap of faith at one point in the yes. end of the movie, yeah. Yeah. And there was also a scene when like when Indy is reunited with his father and he's coming through the window and then like he tells him, I found the entrance to the catacombs. And then like you hear that. And it's like you get a, it's like the music is doing like a few things. It's establishing Sean Connery is a scholarly man. It's establishing this kind of like hope that like there is a path to the grail. And then it's also establishing their father son relationship all in one go. And like when when Indy tells him the name of the town they have to start from to like follow the map, he says Alexandretta. And Connor's like Alexandretta, of course. And like you see here this like theme of John Williams is like kind of like kind of I don't know if it sounds like a fairy a fairy like theme or something like that, but it's kind of like that childlike enthusiasm that he gets from like you know um, feeling sort of with has a lot of glee and like in 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 this in this quest for the for the Holy Grail. I keep thinking about Hook every time I think of John Williams too, and like his like 
his like uh, <laughs> that that childlike enthusiastic like whole score. I'm sorry. I'm like I'm I'm literally shoehorning in more more. Uh, well he's got a hell of a resume so it's a like i think of i'm thinking of jurassic park like i for some reason jurassic park went through my head like 30 minutes ago i was like dude yeah no care i was like i know carrie's gonna bring up john williams a little bit uh jurassic park was fucking sick man (laughs) dude i know yeah the gosh the whole yeah i like the 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 end theme of the it almost sounds like a lullaby and could be a lullaby but it's such a like has the, the the thing with Spielberg and John Williams again? They have this kind of like childlike, almost fairy tale feel to like some of their sort of scores, and I feel like those kind of movies fall under that category. Um, but it was really cool because I feel like the ma- the magic in this movie kind of exists within Harrison Ford and John Connery's relationship. Like, and it, they do such a good job, and like, sort of like you said, like when we go to the climax, and you know. For, I mean, first of all, it's just such a great, I mean, the whole, the movie is great in, its, in of itself because the story is great. And like once Sean Connery gets shot, the grail becomes the thing that has to save Sean Connery's life. So all these things are just like coming together, like the themes and the story just come together and the music. So like when, when, when Indy gets the grail and he gives it to Sean Connery, he pours it over the wound and he's better and you hear the music soar and you're kind of feeling this like, or something like that, you know, it's just, and then of course, when, you know, the Nazi bitch is um, trying to take the grail and the, and the floor separates and, you know, she tries to grab the grail and like, she's hanging out with one hand and like with the other hand, she's trying to grail. He's like, I could reach it. And then she falls. And of course, Indy, Indy's in the same predicament. And the music once again, try is, 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 is doing three things. It's establishing the father and son relationship. It's, 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 it's bringing closure to the quest for the grail. Um, and in a way it's also kind of bringing closure to, to like this thing called illumination that like the father is searching for and the son without really knowing. And of course, you know, at the end when like, Indy's like, oh, I can almost reach it, dad. And of course, Beautiful John Connery says, Indiana, let it go. Oh, that to me like, is so, I love that. I know that, I don't even know if there's a music hit there. There is, like, you, you like your Junior, give me your other hand. I can't hold on. I can get it. I can almost reach it, Dad. Indiana. Indiana. And then like the camera like rack focuses from Sean Connery to to um yeah. to Indy and he's just the look in his eye, he's like, Oh my god, my father understands me or something. He like looks up at him, they grab hands and you hear and like and then you bring in the night theme of and Sean Connery's looking at the night and he's saluting him, and I'm like, oh man, this is just like this is again one of my one of the greatest like one or two minutes of like musical mm-hmm. climax I've ever seen in a movie because it just brings everything together so 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 well like oh it's staggeringly beautiful like how how great the scene is yeah that I love that that final scene you're talking that final scene you're talking about I, I think I always I, I always go back to Last Crusade I mean I can sit here and say like I just earlier did it's my favorite out of the 
I yeah. don't really include the fourth one, <laughs> but like, I don't first, even know what you're talking about. Fourth one. Like. Yeah. Or the potential fifth one. But, um, the, the third one for me, I always go back to it. That father son dynamic. I, Sean Connery just reminds me of my dad in this, really, in that movie. Like the, the good parts, not like how, yeah. you know, Sean Connery's I'm not, my dad's not really cynical. I don't even know if yeah. I'd say Sean Connery's character cynical, but he's very, uh, I don't, I don't know what he is. He's very eccentric. I, I got kind of an eccentric father. I mean that in a, a loving way. Yeah. But there are these just carefully selected moments where he snaps into dad mode. And yeah. that scene right there where he's just like, I've had a moment like that with my dad when I'm like trying to just like, when I'm just like going ape shit, trying to get something done. And suddenly he will just say my name and like calmly just be like, chill out relax mm. and like as someone who's about to be a father like i hope i kind of am able to do something like that too you know like you know like so I, I just love that scene where he just tells him to let it go forget it who gives a shit you're yeah. more important to me you're my son you yeah, know son, exactly yeah. there is yeah it's a thing it's a holy grail whatever it's supposed to be lost forever almost and i, I know i'm talking about just plot points rather than the the film but or rather than the, the the music but I don't know if there's a music hit here, but when they think Indiana, Indiana Jones died and he fell off the cliff. <laughs> but like silence over the cliff. But Sean Connery grabs him and it's like the first time in the movie. For, yeah. been for like 90 minutes, you know, he hasn't really Hunting, shown yeah. too much emotion. He just, yeah. you know, goes, I thought I lost you, boy. You. And you hear his voice kind of crack a little bit. And it's like, oh. And he so says, he I is, thought I did too, sir. Dad. Yeah, it, it's such a beautiful it, scene. It's it's it's. I think it's my favorite of the bunch. I, I always go back. I, I to love when I love when Salah is just happy and like. Meanwhile, uh, Marcus Brody is like trying to figure out like how Andy jumped from the tank to a cliffside. He's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, oh man, it's such it's it's such a great scene. It's such a great father son relationship. I think Spielberg is doing what he does best and just great adventure and great heart and just kind of it just really came together in this film. And like he's done, he, I mean, he's done it time and again in a bunch, a bunch of his other films, but it's just like, yeah, the magic of John Williams. So from one emotional powerhouse of, well, I mean, yeah, you know, it really is one emotional powerhouse of a film to another for mine. Um, like Sean Connery, we're talking about a lot on the show. We, like I said, we're going to drop Hans Zimmer's name a lot, probably because he really kind of is the most contemporary film composer right now, I feel like. Um, is he, you know, the greatest of all time? Like, would you say that I feel like he's he's earned the the, the reputation that John Williams has? Because I feel like he doesn't get enough credit. I I, I, I get what you mean. I don't know if I, I don't know. I think I'm still waiting for time to tell. You know? Yeah, that makes I'm, sense. It, it's it it John Williams does have all these phenomenal like his resume. Like he has Star Wars under his belt. Hans yeah. Zimmer will not. Yes, Hans Zimmer has the Dark Knight trilogy. But I think people still put Star Wars above Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight. Sure. Um, but, and by the way, Hans Zimmer does a great job. That is a really good Batman score. But I'm not going with the Nolan trilogy. I'm going with Inception as my number one. First of all, to mention this about Christopher Nolan, I think he is one of my favorite contemporary filmmakers. He's kind of the one director that I really pulled me into understanding cinema when I was coming out of high school and going into, you know, like after post high school into my twenties, like 
he kind of hit. I still remember going to the midnight screening of the Dark Knight and just going, oh, you can do this with a superhero movie. Okay, it doesn't have to be explosions and rescuing the girl. It can be about everyday real-life problems. Um, But uh, Inception was a movie that, you know, I feel like the studio was like, oh, you made us a billion dollars. Here's 250 million. Go fucking do whatever you want. I have this really complicated plot of a script. Dude, Yeah. here, here's the money. Go make it. It's fine. So people say it's like, and it is kind of complicated if you're going in blind, but I don't know. I felt I followed it the first time I saw it. I follow it the 10th time I've seen it. And I pick up on little things here and there. And I think like Spielberg and John Williams, Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan just know each other's language and know how to put it on the screen. Yeah. And if you notice in a lot of when they're working together, there there's never really not a lot of music there's never really a there's maybe one scene i think in every nolan and zimmer collaboration where maybe they do a scene without any music his music is just woven in it scene after scene after scene after scene it carries you from even the scenes that you know are you know a little bit of exposition but still like it's trying to carry it to you to the big plot points and when the big plot points hit in a movie with Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan, they fucking hit big. Yeah. Um, so like, and I, I think with Inception, I, I've just, I actually personally felt inspired creatively because I'm not trying to plug my own work here, but uh, <laughs> no, go ahead, plug away. I, I, when I made my first feature film, the, the station, like I kind of mimicked, I, I'm not going to lie. I mimicked the end of Inception, kind of this, you know, I obviously it's not on the level of the end of Inception, but I wanted this kind of soft building song throughout the final few minutes and then just to kind of, you know, leave it and back out quietly, um, just kind of like how they do in Inception. And I, I literally kind of almost did a had my composer for that movie uh, do something similar to that score with an acoustic guitar. That was like my comparison that I I did. And the song at the end of Inception, and everybody knows the end of Inception is obviously very, you know, I don't want to say infamous, but it's, it's one of the best cliffhangers, I think in the last 10 years where people talk about it and don't know really what happened or they do, but do they? And, you know, you ask Christopher Nolan about it. He just goes, Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But the song that plays throughout it is a song called Time. I, you know, listen to that movie all the time. I think there's been a ton of people that have used that song for little YouTube montage videos of 
about the world and our problems and how we can be better. I think someone took one of the famous ones is someone took the speech at the end of the great dictator with Charlie Chaplin and used that song underneath that scene and like got like millions oh, and yeah. millions of views on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and I, I was always, a, I feel like that song has been used a lot in like self-help videos and like, yeah, like there's like a lot of like, like this guy, this, like celebrity stories of like, you know, this guy was once so-and-so, but then like, and he was, and he and she were like, was going through this, this, and this. And then like, yeah, they it, do it's that, like all the time. But in, in Inception, like, I'll get back to that in just a sec, but, like, the, in a lot of the action scenes, there's, it's just so intense of, like, I remember there's this, there's this one track, I don't know what it's called, but it's just, like, it's such a panicky song by Hans Zimmer. It's like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the chase at the beginning, that's... Yeah, it's like that. Uh, it it so just, good. it's like, I think in the final, when they're on that like snow base in the mountains or something, like when shit starts going south, like that song plays and it just, it's so unnerving. Um, I remember when I heard that score for the first time in the theater and I felt like it was so, it had a really dizzying effect, but I was just like, this is, it was really catchy, but it was like, and I felt yeah. like was, the music was making me feel like I was in a dream, you know, not to sound corny, but like it was, it was doing something to my brain that it doesn't normally do, but in a really cool way, you know, like that. No, it, I think it's meant to jar you because of the whole yeah. plot line of going into someone's mind and, you know, I, I'm not going to go into the plot line of Inception. <laughs> if you haven't seen it goes like I could, I could do it another two hours on the plot line of Inception and all these little things that are going on in it. But as for the score, you know, when the film ends and the song time kicks on and it just, I've studied that song and really the, the core of that song is two notes. It's literally like one note going dun, dun. Yeah. And it's just going back and forth, but like the melody picks up and other instruments come in between those two notes. And then it just kind of, once it climaxes, it just goes back to those two keys
and then you know then the movie ends on its big cliffhanger ending but you know what's funny is that like when I whenever I'm traveling internationally through an airport and I'm getting through security and having my passport stamped, which I really hate. I hate the waiting in an airport, but once that shit is done and over with, that song just triggers in my head immediately. Yeah. I'm like, yes. That that scene is or I'm on vacation. <laughs> that that scene is so beautiful with how like once it starts, you're just like, oh, oh my god, they did it. They did it. But then like midway through it you're just kind of like wait a minute no did it is this a dream is this a fucking dream no wait eh, no they like you just again it's so jarring and then once it ends you're just like fuck (laughs) no i kind of guessed that was the way it ended it didn't ruin the movie for me at all but i was like i wonder they wouldn't would they i don't know i'm just oh shit (laughs) i think people like wrapped their head around it too much and i just I don't know. I just enjoy it. I don't even care. Like, I don't even have like a definite, honestly, like I, I watch it when I watch it every now and then I just, I, I like form a new question at the end. Cause like, I'll yeah. see something early on that I didn't pick up on. I don't know. It's, but I think, you know, Han, this is Han Zimmer's maybe his most, eh, I don't want to say his most, maybe you'll disagree with me on here because I know you love gladiator, but I feel like it's just a really emotional score. Oh yeah. And I, I feel, you know, Inception is a very emotional film. There, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really like deep, dark, sad things that happen throughout the film. You know, it's a guy trying to get back to his family after a tragic thing happened to him. That's at the core of the movie. And, you know, as much as there's these big epic action scenes and, you know, Hans Zimmer's big ep- epic action scores. I think when you sum it all up in the five minutes, last five minutes of the movie, that score just perfectly puts a stamp on the film. Um, Mouse, there it is, Mouse Inception. Theme, by the way, Mal's huh? theme, in, in, uh, uh, Marion Cotillard's character, like Mal, like her theme in Inception, the whole... Like, yeah, yeah. Almost like there's a warm, inviting feeling to it. That really, like, really stirs and breaks and warms my heart at the same time when i hear that because it's just like i got it's just like it's it's almost like you get a feeling of longing about a guy who lost his wife and now he's trying to put the pieces back together whether metaphorically or literally you know and like there's a lot i, I feel a lot of that when i'm watching a section too because obviously and it's obviously i guess one of christopher nolan's fortes he has to sort of like crush your soul at the beginning by by like showing the death of a loved one or something super fucked up and tragic happening <laughs> and then you just like have put the pieces back together like what's that yeah. like about Christopher Nolan? he's always he's always willing to go to like the worst worst case scenario like in his like supercharged like box office epic extra extra extravaganza movies and like the studios are just all all for it like he's, he's just able to able to do that kind of stuff and I loved how like I, I don't want to like go off off topic but i was i always think of interstellar too because like i feel like nolan and zimmer's collaboration there's always always garter something new and different because interstellar is not like a traditional Hans zimmer score to my knowledge like when i listen to it yeah like, i agree i agree a really sad almost like even i don't know i don't know if darker is the right word but it definitely hits on some really unnerving notes and and unsettling moments that like and the, and the organ that the, the the use of the organ and like in a space movie, I was like, wow, that is incredible. Because I think he mentioned in an interview how like he wanted to use an instrument that kind of felt or sounded ancient or something. And I'm like, that's yeah. genius. It's fucking genius. And like, 
it's like a, yeah, it's a good interesting kind of sound that I feel like Nolan and Zimmer, Nolan and Zimmer have that's different from like a, a Zimmer Scott collaboration or a Zimmer Tony Scott or you know, which is good. Uh, like, I'm happy Hans Zimmer goes and makes a movie with a different director. Yeah. And like, yeah, I know it's Hans Zimmer, but I don't want to feel like I'm watching a Christopher Nolan movie when it's directed by Ridley Scott, which I know obviously they're different directors. You'll still yeah. get, but like the music is so important that like, yeah. I don't know. I guess I like how he's so he is able to give I think what I'm trying to say is I like how he gives a director something different than what he did to this director, but you still know he's got his, it's his stamp. Like it's his, yeah. it's his thing. Um, I think when the right director comes along, like, and he's working with Zimmer, like their Zimmer is always open to trying something different. That's challenging. That's something you've never heard before. Cause like, it's like, you can, you can watch, you can watch a score by like composers and sometimes they're, I don't know if it's necessarily they're doing like they'll play kind of similar notes or similar themes with like certain movies, but then with auteurs like no, like Christopher Nolan or Ridley Scott or even James L. Brooks, they're like, let's try something different. Let's try going this way as opposed to this way. Let's yeah, let's create some sounds that audiences are not used to hearing and see if we can like trigger something different out of them. You know. All right, my friend. Well, we did it. We did yes. it. Uh film score episode um this was fun dude i'm glad we, I'm glad, I'm glad we like this, this I, I i yeah i thought i thought we'd do something different and i don't know like you know i, I know we had a diff- few different ideas but like i think i just maybe heard a good film score one day and i was like me and carrie should do a film score episode so here we are um i really i really like that we were covering music because i feel like we didn't do enough of that on previous pods and now we have like we had the opportunity to just like just like deep dive into this it's like music yeah is, i mean i love listening to music so it's great to talk about it um i know you've been on the show multiple times and we probably know where to find you and i'll just leave it in the show notes but i know you've had some i don't know some cool things coming up recently that you've been promoting uh did you want to maybe take a chance to plug it right here yeah sure so um right now i'm working for this show called what do you bring to the table um, which is a talk show hosted by a comedian named uh, Rajiv Satyal. He's an Indian American comedian based in LA. Um, and it's similar to Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. We have a lot of um, celebrity guests on the shows, um, mainly actors and comedians, sometimes philosophers, philanthropists. Um, I think we had, we had a politician, but we have a lot of guests on the show. And we just, they, you know, they sit down and they just talk and exchange stories and there's funny tidbits here and there. And it's, it's a talk show. It's like a really cool thing. We, um, so we had um, comedian Hassan Minhaj on the show, who's actually a friend of Rajiv's. We had a uh, philosopher Deepak Chopra. We had um, Nina Davalori, who's uh, who was Miss America 2014. And she's also a philanthropist and a bunch of other cool guests. Um, so if you want to check out the show, you can go to watchrajiv.com. Rajiv is spelled R-A-J-I-V. Um, if you want to follow us, I, um, if you if you follow my Instagram, uh, Carrie V Productions, you'll find a few of the clips from the show because I actually do content for the show. I take like minute long clips and I make them and I post them. And we're and actually in the middle of um, working on season two, which is set to come out January. So we're just like we're promoting it right now, and um, it's a fun show. And if you wanna if you wanna check out more of the clips. 
You can also go to Rajiv's Instagram, which is uh, Funny Indian, um, which is yeah, really great channel. It's, it's, it's a fun show. Like you can watch it. You can also just play in the background, much like a podcast and do whatever work you need to do. And it's, it's fun times. Yeah, no, it, no, it really is. Um, congratulations on that. When you first sent me the link and, or the video, it was, uh, it was entertaining. So I'll put that in the show notes. That was uh, congratulations on that. Cool, man. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Congratulations uh, on your future daughter. Thanks, man. I mean, by the time this airs, I don't think she'll be here yet, but it will it will be definitely closer. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, you guys know the routine. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I don't know. See you next week. Subscribe. Leave a comment. Leave a rating and a review. And we will see you next week on The Basement.